Omega Man Radio has been commissioned to invade deep into enemy territory, drive out the hosts of hell, and take back the land. Our mission is to preach Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who is the only name written under heaven by which men might be saved, cast out demons, and pray for the sick that they may be healed in Jesus' name. If this program is a blessing to you and you would like to take part in this harvest of souls, join with us and attack the hosts of hell by donating any amount online at www.omegamanradio.com. You may also donate by sending check or money order to 9030 West Sahara Avenue, Suite 665, Las Vegas, Nevada, 89117. We thank you. Are you ready? Ready to take a ride? Grab your coffee and strap yourself in. Because the show is about to begin. From the front lines of America, Babylon. And transmitting worldwide on the internet and satellite. You are listening to Omega Man Radio Network. With Shannon Davis. Okay, we're going to jump right on in. Uh, did either of you gentlemen remember that uh, intro? It was a TV series back in the uh, 70s. Oh. No. Uh, don't. Do you remember? Um, I was the, overseas at that point in time, so I probably wouldn't have seen it. Do you remember uh, $6 million man, Steve Austin? Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. Um I was showing my son some of the lunch boxes that we used to carry. I had one of those as a uh, student. It was a big square metal lunch boxes. Remember those? Have a thermos yes. inside. <laughs> I don't know. Yes. If kids, do kids still use those anymore? I don't know. But I, we had fun with those. No, things. they all do school lunches. I don't now. think so. I think they have these uh, lunch bags that they are made out of canvas or whatever. Paper bags that are insulated. Yeah, well, no, they're they're uh, material that has insulation in them. At least they do have here in oh, St. Vincent, so right. that you can keep your hot things hot and cold things cold. Well, now those certainly work better than just a uh, a metal lunchbox. But I I thought all the cool uh, pictures on them, cartoon stuff, you know, was was worth it. 
Um, <laughs> They're still there. You know, just, you just it's more what the kids want to see today. You just triggered a memory. When I worked for U.S. Army Warrant Officer Division as a civil servant up in Perscom headquarters, um, I was working with some Vietnam-era guys. This was in the early 90s. And uh, they were still um, in the service. And at this time, you know, they were approaching the end of their career. They were going to retire. And, uh, but just about all of them were in there from Vietnam. And they told some cool stories. But what I was just thinking about is, I remember we had this one guy on the desk, Major Tom, and um, every day he would eat a uh, the same thing that his wife would make make him. And he would go and grab this paper bag, and it was a, a sandwich. And then he told the story. His wife will make them for like a week or two in advance, and they would freeze them. And so mm. <laughs> he was eating like a thawed ham sandwich every day in a bag. So boring. <laughs> but he would bring it in the paper bag. <laughs> we were like, let's go Be get it. Be glad it wasn't liver worse than onions. But, you know. Well, that's true. <laughs> we had one guy there. On He was the branch chief. His name was, he was a lieutenant colonel. I forget his name now, but. Uh, we had a bunch of Mosley, Lieutenant Colonel Mosley. He was in Nam, and he told me a story where he was pinned down for 30 days in the field by enemy fire and was unable to take a shower. 30 days went without a shower. Uh, so I guess when you have been out there in Da Nang and in the bush, you know, you can eat just about anything. And, you know, you can get by with um, things that other people may not be able to get by with, you know, because you have to rough it out there sometime in the jungle, right? That's correct. <laughs> and I better stop right there. We're going to go down memory lane. Uh, but I will play a special song for you later. Um, but right now, we're just going to jump on in. Um, again, Major Tom, how long has it been since we've been on the show with you? I was trying to figure that out. I don't I don't know. It's been almost a year. I think it has. It said I hadn't contacted you on Skype in about a year. Well, welcome back, my friend. How you been? Well, pretty good. I went from blindness to... Uh, sight, and then uh, a very blurry sight, but at least it was clear. And it's gradually, uh, very, very slowly, because my eyes are old, by the way, so they don't heal as fast as a two-year-old would. Well, praise the and, Lord, uh, my friend. You spent but it's time. good to see. Uh, you were in America for a while. I haven't been back in seven years. Uh, somebody told me I wouldn't recognize it. Did you recognize America when you went back this time? Oh, yeah, um, but I stayed with family. Well, that's good. Any big changes, though, that you saw, or was it kind of uh, similar the last time you visited? No, it's about the same. I was uh, I was uh, there uh, for two reasons. We had um, a appointment we had to make with uh, in reference to my wife's green card to get it renewed. And uh, we ended up in New York City, in Jamaica, New York, specifically. Oh, boy. Just on the outskirts of New York City. And uh, so we, we had a successful trip. And in the middle of the trip, um, my daughter-in-law, we were staying with our son and his wife. And she was working as a... Uh, I'm not sure what they call it, an aide or assistant aide or something like that for a doctor's office. And um, 
she, they decided they were discussing my difficulty in seeing and actually uh, my left eye which is my dominant eye had actually gone blind and my right eye was approaching or starting the process wow and um, they said well while you're here we've got very reputable cataract surgeons you want me to canvas around and see who's the best one and get you one, get an appointment with him yes and so we said yes and uh, the Lord worked it out where we were able to um, reshuffle our, our budget of items and, and get it work in the surgery. And uh, he really, really was professional, and I'm very grateful for that, for his hand upon the healing process that the Lord himself actually is doing, but he was one of the assistants to the Lord. Well, praise God. So, what do they use these days? They do it with a laser? Just go in there and clean it up? Well, no, they do. But if you're real old um, and it's really advanced, your eye and you happen to be taking uh, glaucoma medication at the same time, the glaucoma eye drops okay. tend to uh, deteriorate the corona so that it cannot open and close. And it won't open enough for a laser to work, so they use the old-fashioned uh, ultrasound method for those. Oh, wow. But fortunately, um, my eyes responded correctly, and I they were able to use lasers. My first one was on my left eye because that was the worst. When the laser, when I was under the laser, I was, of course, strapped down and unable to move, but I could watch. As this thing began to flash its lights, and it disintegrated the um, cataract completely into little pe- little bitty pieces of dust, along with my lens, and uh, with it. so I got to see a most beautiful shower of sparks, which was all that debris from the cataract. And uh, then they took me from that particular room into the surgery room where they have it all set up with microscopes. You know, you remember when you were in school and you looked through a microscope and saw all these microbes and so on? Sure. Well, they they do the surgery under microscope. Oh, wow. So it's really finite. And uh, they, they cut a little slice underneath uh, just open up the, there's a little sack that your lens is in it opens up the sack you know, you know I don't know a millimeter or whatever it was and then they uh, flush out and suction out all of the debris and and when everything's clean inside the sack they then put a plastic circular lens with little fingers on the edges of it that are kind of spring loaded in plastic they're, they're, they're still plastic but they open up and uh, push against the edge wall of the the bag that holds your lens and uh, centers it it centers itself just like that amazing and uh, then of course the healing process heals the incision back up and it also heals the uh, the eye, the surface of the eye, because the laser was also slicing off 
some of my astigmatism. Wow. It can do that. But it leaves your eye, eye uh, surface like a uh, piece of sandpaper. Oh. And, uh, and so as the light comes through, it sees all of these little pieces that are out of place that haven't healed yet. And it causes a, uh, the same thing that a cataract does, it except it causes a white glare instead of a gray glare. And I'm healing through that process as well as the eye having to adjust its focal length to the lens that they put in my eye. Brother, this is exciting news. Uh, how far technology has come. In fact, it's amazing. Uh, before we continue, Brother Tom, let's pray for Major Tom right now. See if God will speed yeah. up the healing. You want to lift up him up in prayer? Yes, let's do. Heavenly Father, in the name of Yahuwah HaMashiach, we just come before you and we lift up Major Tom before your throne. We just ask that you would intervene with his eyes and make it so he sees clearly, as Amen. clearly as he did when he was born. He's going to have the capability. Let him see as you would intend him to see when you created Adam and Eve. Thank you, Lord. And we just we just ask that you would restore his eyes. Yes, Lord. And that you would make them make them as you intended them to be. We just thank you for doing it. Amen. Yes, Lord. I agree. We just Amen. Agree. Plead the blood of Jesus over your eyes. We speak to the eyes. Rapidly heal. Better vision than ever before. Yes, Lord. Thank Even you, 2020. Lord. In Jesus Christ's name, God, oh, touch his eyes right Amen. now. In the name of Amen. Jesus. Amen. And Lord, yes, Lord. Hallelujah. And I claim 2015, not 2020. Yes. Amen or better. I knew there was Thank a you, Lord. That's like equal eye You vision. can get... Yes. Yeah, you can get down. You can get down to 2010. Some some aviators are that like that. I was wow correctable to 2015. That's pretty cool. So, folks, welcome now, aboard today. Back to you. Amen. One of the things that I'm very grateful for, and that I want to testify to everyone, is that what a a beautiful, balanced and wonderfully complex thing the Lord has created when he created man. Absolutely. Yes, he did. He created them male and female. Uh, this was not evolution from some toad. Uh, <laughs> in fact, I believe there's four categories now. You can, you can be a biological male, a biological female, you could be uh, in a mutant, uh, having received too much mRNA injection, and then you got that other category where they're full on demon possessed, don't even know what they are, male, female, or avocado. We're in a terrible mess in America. That's why I asked you if it was the same or not, because I heard it's changed a lot. Uh, and we are in a mess out there. That's all that they seem to be talking about in the news. Transgender. Mm. Science wants to take us to transhumanism, and uh, it's just sick. But I'm going to step back and give the mic to you, gentlemen. And I want to say, Brother Mac, um, I like your new office, brother. You look like you're up there in the clouds on the 40th floor. 
That reminds me of That's a condo I used to live in. I love it, man. That's great. <laughs> I love it. Uh, Jim, yeah, the, over to you. Yeah, the thing we were going to do today, Major Baird's going to study a part of a scripture that not too many people know about. We were, since 1646, we've had a 66-book Bible from all intents and purposes. When the King James Version came out, there were 81 books. But the Westminster Confession truncated that to 66 books. And, but the weirdest thing is even in the 81-book Bible, we had references to a book of Jasher, which the King James translators knew it was out there, but they had, did not have access to it. It was still in obscure scrolls in Egypt and in Palestine, and it was not... It was not Available. accessible. Mm -hmm. Same thing with the Book of Jubilees. And the same thing with the Book of Enoch, which we're going to talk about today. And the interesting thing, we were studying one of the apocryphal books called Second Ezra the other day. And we just keep reading it, and suddenly... We'd start seeing, well, they use this illustration in Matthew 24. Mm -hmm. And then we go look a little further and, oh, they're using it here. They're using it there. Revelation grabbed this from here. And we suddenly realize where are these guys saying this book is not divinely inspired? Mm -hmm. What criteria did they use? Well, they never revealed that. We just had a bunch of guys decide. In fact, they made this decision. They put it before the Scottish Parliament. They passed. Goes down before the English Parliament. They say, well, you're going to have to show us scriptures before we're going to accept this. But the biggest problem with the Westminster Confession is it finishes up being do what thou wilt, mm -hmm. which is very blasphemous. We're to follow the will of our Heavenly Father. We're not to do what we want. If we do what we want, we're going to destroy ourselves. The Bible is replete with examples of people who did what they wanted. And so I start seeing this and I start realizing where do these guys get the authority to decide which books are the which books we should read and which ones we shouldn't? Do they have any of more authority than say the Council of Trent, which came up with the eighty one books in the first place? 
they didn't know anything about Enoch. They didn't know anything about Jubilees. They didn't know anything about Jasher other than it was mentioned. And yet, when you look at the Dead Sea Scrolls, the most common scroll in the whole, the whole collection was Jubilees. Mm-hmm. And we aren't even reading it. And that also, was followed by, by Enoch. Yeah. And the other one that was notable there was the books of Enoch. And there's four of them. But these days, most people just stick them all into one, which is what the Jews did with First and Second Samuel. They stuck it all into one book. But for convenience, the Catholic Church broke it into two. Actually, let's put the credit where credit's due. Stephanius did that. He just mm-hmm. thought it would be easier, and honestly, I don't disagree with it. I don't like these big, long books, and i got to scramble through the whole thing trying to figure it out. Whereas with First and Second Samuel, I know First and Se- First Samuel's more about the ascension of Saul, whereas the sec- Second Samuel's about the ascension and kingship of David. And I can ma- make sense of it that way, but if they stuffed it all into one book, it might be a little harder for me to find it. Mm-hmm. But the big thing we have to understand is we've let men make arbitrary decisions, and we have never been allowed to question them. And generally, it has never been on a spiritual aspect that they've made the decision that's been on a political aspect. Political and also, when you read these things, they read like, like your biology paper you wrote at Michigan State. <laughs> and I'm sorry I've written you've written science papers so have I and you have to be precise you've got to be exacting and I'm sorry sometimes in spirituality you're you're not very exact because you're getting taken somewhere or doing something that doesn't exactly make sense to you at the moment you have to make sense of it as you go along. And sometimes you need help to make sense of it. Because when you're dealing in the spiritual realm, you're not dealing with objective fact necessarily. You're dealing in a realm that is way beyond our thinking. Our Heavenly Father says to us, my ways are not your ways. So sometimes Tom has to let go of his ways and have them adjusted by what our Heavenly Father wants them to be. And that's not exactly an easy task. Well, remember, remember the injunction we have in Proverbs that so aptly applies to this in Proverbs 3, verse 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not under your own understanding. And all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. And not only that, he'll direct your thoughts, he'll direct your understanding. In fact, he'll flesh it out when you need it. Exactly. Now, let's... You're talking about the Book of Enoch. For a lot of people who don't know, let's let's give a real quick history. 
Enoch is the yeah. oldest book we mm -hmm. have. It was written in antediluvian times before the flood. No other book in the Bible is that old. Because you remember the Torah is the books of Moses. They were done about 3500 B.C. Well, the antediluvian period is considerably earlier. Yeah, Enoch and, himself, by the way, was the seventh generation from Adam. And yes. he was born in the year 622 from Adam. And the interesting thing, he probably has a few years where he was alive when Adam was alive. And so mm -hmm. he knows the entire well, history. Yes. In fact, uh, Adam would have been able to speak with Enoch or Enoch with Adam because Adam was still alive. Adam exactly. lived to be, you know, 930 years old when he died. And along the 622-year mark is when Enoch was born. So it would very easily have done. Yeah, they have 300 years to get it done. Actually, mm -hmm. about 250, but that's mm -hmm. still a lot of time. It's yep. hard for us because we live to be 80, 90 years old and it's done. Mm -hmm. That's you know, when a lot of them didn't even get married until after that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they were. You know, some you of have them to, did. Yeah. You have to remember their particular world had a firmament above and a firmament below the waters. In other words, the earth was like a terrarium. It was an enclosed world with water above the atmosphere and, and the waters below that was on the surface of the earth. And with that particular kind of uh, arrangement that God had made, it blocked most of the UV and the uh, dangerous radiation from space and from the sun. Plus, it probably gave a, uh, the engineers have calculated, it probably gave you a uh, PSI instead of 15 PSI atmospheric pressure. It was probably around 52. Well, if you got 52 on the inside of you and a 52 on the outside, it's, met, it's balanced. But with a compression like that, you heal up. You, you stay healthy a lot longer and, and you heal much faster. Well, they've studied plants from that particular time and they noticed the oxygen content in these plants was a lot higher than it is today yes and the trouble is though you go walking around with an oxygen machine it doesn't doesn't seem to help you all that much usually they're giving that to you when you're about ready to die <laughs> yeah. but it's you know, they just, you know, just you just can't walk around with an oxygen machine and hope to live longer. It doesn't work that way. Because our bodies have had thousands of years to adjust to what the atmospheric pressure is now. Mm -hmm. That's right. <clears throat> so, ne nevertheless, look at, yeah, go ahead. 
when we look at the backdrop of Enoch, we're seeing an antediluvian time. And it's a very, very strange time to us. So when we when we read Enoch, we see an interesting spiritual battle. We have a group of beings called the Watchers. They're Ben Elohim, or sons of sons of gods, because Elohim has thirty-two different definitions depending on what the context of what's being written. Elohim can refer to our Heavenly Father, but it can also refer to false gods. When you hear, you read in the Bible, you shall have no other other gods before you. The word is there is Elohim. You shall have no other Elohim before you. So not all these gods are good. That's why... The statement itself implies that you've got other gods there. Right. And the Watchers, in our 66-book Bible, the only mention of Watchers is in the book of Daniel, in chapter 4. There, they're mentioned several times in relationship to the judgment of Nebuchadnezzar, who one day decided that he was God himself. And had to be re-educated. So. That's our limited. Perception of what the watchers are. Until. We get to Enoch. Mm-hmm. And then we see where the. Where the watchers. Broke the rules. And became connected to human beings. And when they did that. They were cast down from heaven and not allowed to go back. And so they're still amongst us, but they're normally not allowed to have contact with us. And when they do, they suffer severe penalties. Well, in the book of Enoch, they've committed these sins, and now they're trying to find a way back to heaven. And multiple times, Enoch has to, he goes to heaven, asks our Heavenly Father, and Heavenly Father answers no every time. Because there are certain things, when he tells you don't do it, you better not do it. That's what I worry about with these scientists and their transhumanism today. They are crossing a line that one will deprave them. And when they get depraved, which I've seen that with some of them, I listened to that one guy, I won't mention his name, because he's so perverse, but you see, you see where his mind has gotten so corrupted, he's, he's no longer using the natural use of his body, he's come up with something else. And when you do that, you become depraved. And when you become depraved, you fall down a pit that you could never get out of. You don't want to get out of. That's 
why it's depravity is because it's a sin you want and you don't ever want to get out of it. And sad to say, while redemption is available, they'll never take it up. But now we get to Enoch. He is helping us to understand this process and why they can never be saved and why mm-hmm. they cannot be redeemed because they have fallen into such a state because of their wickedness and the fact mm-hmm. that they disobeyed our Heavenly Father. Big time, yeah. And that's the problem, and I think that's why Enoch was never considered by the Presbyterians in the 17th century. Is if you're going to say, do what thou wilt, you can't have a book in there that's telling you, no, you can't do what thou wilt. You've got to do what your Heavenly Father says to do. So, that's why it gets whacked. Mm-hmm. When you start reading some of these apocryphal books, it isn't long till you figure out why they were whacked. And then you say, this is really bad because when you read some of these books, then you can go find in the New Testament where the, our New Testament leaders were quoting from them. Mm-hmm. Enoch yeah. was quoted by Jude. Yep, verbatim, and, that's right. So, and Jude isn't the only one. Paul quoted him a number of times. But, you know, you're never going to see that in your standard Bible. No. Now, one of the other things that's very scary, uh, once you, since you've mentioned that, we have only copies of the original language. Uh, say, of the Hebrew Bible and the Torah. And the oldest version is around the late 900s to 1000 AD is the uh, oldest version of the copy of the Hebrew Bible. Now, the problem is it's known as the Masoretic Text. The Masoretic text was concocted by a group of rabbis who have a who were scribes, and you've heard the the statement, the lying pen of the scribe. Well, of Jeremiah, I'll get you a site for that in a minute. Yeah, yeah, Jeremiah speaks about that, and sure enough. These guys, they were uh, individuals who were anti-Christian at the time, and they wanted all references that could point to the Messiah as coming as a, a suffering servant and dying and being resurrected from the dead. He, they wanted to get rid of all those references and anything that pointed to that to include Melchizedek being... Um, Shem, they what they did is they actually went in. You can go to the Septuagint, which they did not monkey with. 
okay they didn't get into that one to be able to change it it was in a different venue so they couldn't get to it at the time and it's not like publishing today where you've got publishers all over the world and you can get a copy of anything you want they couldn't just do that so anyway what happened is there's over 3,000 errors in the Hebrew that we're using as the standard for our translations. Gentlemen, I don't know let's, take it a little fur- let's take it a little further. What happened with the Masoretic text? The Hebrew, it's in there. It's fine. What they did... Mm-hmm was they added vowel points or what they would call nicodotes. And they're there to help us. To help us pronounce these words. Well, excuse me. That's right. Yeah, but they want you to pronounce it their way. Well, now hold up here for a second, guys. Uh, Let me put my two cents worth in. We got the Masoretic Hebrew from the Aleppo Codex and Leningrad Codex. And I know yeah. the well, old argument is, well, there are no vowels in Hebrew. Well, you don't need vowels if you're a native Hebrew speaker. And that's all you've been, you've been uh, speaking your whole life, and you know how to pronounce it, you know how to spell it. But that's for those of us who are not Hebrew speakers. We have no idea how you spell the word or pronounce it. So they added the accent points in there. And I'm glad yeah. that mm-hmm. they did. The but trouble gotta, is, those weren't added until about 800 A.D., Long but, after yep. the canon yeah, but, was closed. But you didn't That's need right. them at that time because you knew how to pronounce it. But mm-hmm. if you don't speak the language, how are you going to know how to pronounce it? So that was Well, for, that's just it. But the trouble is, we've started to find that many times the way it was done anciently wasn't the way the Masoretes did it. That's why we have the lying pen of scribes from Jeremiah 8.8. Well, they didn't all do. A, they didn't all lie. In fact, uh, Doctor Nehemiah Gordon has found uh, over, I think now it's up to ten thousand of these same Hebrew scrolls that you're talking about, where they kept the name of God intact, and the scribe did not blot it out and use Hashem. That's how we know how to pronounce mm-hmm. God's name now and spell it, Yahovah. Mm-hmm. Now the King James had it right. But if you're really worried about something, you need to go back just only 100 years ago and realize that every modern translation we got, every one of them, with the exception of the King James, the authorized King James, have been recaptured by the Catholic Church, and they're all using the Greek Horton Westcott corrupted Greek text, and they have also mm-hmm. supplanted the Bible with the Vaticanus Sinaiticus and the Alexandrian text. It's all corrupted in these New Age mm-hmm. versions, and they only have 45 base texts. Now, are you going to go with the minority, 45, or are you going to go with about 9,000, that about 95% agree with each other? Mm-hmm. So I, I, don't, I don't agree with throwing the Masoretic under the bus. I think that, listen, you don't have to worry about the Old Testament. We got the ELS in there, and to the scribes, well, we're given the job you can of... Get- Maintain the yeah, Hebrew. You can go. You can go to the Syriac, and uh, and the LXX to um, be able to discern and rightly divide the word. 
I mean, we yeah, got you can, the you can you can see the the errors and you can go around them. We got the Antioch text. I mean, uh, God's able to preserve His word. I mean, let God's word forever be settled in heaven. It has been. Are right. you? You know what? Listen, I had to debate somebody this week. Poor guy. He's bought the lie that's circulating on the internet that we don't have God's word today, because CERN has <sighs> sped up and changed his Bible. And if we don't oh have God's gosh. word today, then here's the bottom line. Nobody's going to hell. Because when you stand before God, you'll say, well, the scribe corrupted it, CERN fired up, it changed my Bible, it's got caught up in a wormhole. I mean, truthfully, nobody could be condemned to go to hell if we didn't have God's word. We've got enough problems to contend with without having to worry that, the God, that God is able to uh, sustain his word. Do you agree that the God of the universe can sustain his word so that we have it today? Now, whether or not you yeah. want to read it or obey it, you know, that's on each person. And most aren't willing to even read it and obey it. But I can't buy into well, the theory that we don't the have his word. They didn't have to. They were told by the churches they didn't have to. They followed the doctrine of Sabati Zivi. Do what thou wilt. And that's and that's the exactly the problem. They did what they wilt. And nowhere is that taught in the scripture. It's taught you follow the will of your heavenly father. How do you how do you feel though about the fact that we've got hundreds of Bible versions and just about all of them are bridges back over to Babylon and the, for a hundred years all these modern versions threw out the Texas Receptus to receive text and they're going off the Horton Westcott these guys started the ghostly guild one of them would go into a church at night by himself in the dark and he said he communed with the dead saints he was involved in necromancy took him 28 years to do that and people thought they had the best thing since sliced bread turns out it was based on the corrupted uh, Greek that they got out of the Vatican and the Alexandrian monastery and all the Bible publishers jumped over to it. Even the third edition of the King James Bible has flipped and went back to Horton Westcott. How yeah, do you the feel about that? version. I'm mm-hmm. talking right now. You see the one that we the one that we should be looking for Al Cuppet and I always agreed on this is you want to find the 1673 King James. Mm-hmm. It was done by Cambridge Press. Cambridge, yep, that's the Cambridge You mean the 17, uh, I think what, it was a 1769 version? Yeah, 1769. I. Yeah, which is the modern one mm-hmm. we got. I mean, you can go Cambridge or Oxford, and look, if you want to read the 1611, you can. You can put them side by it, side. There's not any doctrinal differences, but, I mean... We well, got confusion the 1611 out there. still had 81 books in it. Well, now that's true. But I'm talking about the uh, of the texts that are the same, uh, taking out the Apocrypha, which is, you know, uh, that's not biblical right there. Well, who said? Well, I mean, yeah. By who's? Well, you want to, you, what about Bell and the Dragon? <laughs> it's actually a very, very good story. It tells us how to use physical evidence. And look, we've got some guys that have come on this program and uh, they'll go after the giant scrolls and all the, these other extra-biblical books. And, you know, if you want to do that, so be it. But 
Um, I can't agree that God is not able to preserve his word. Mm-hmm. And you know what? That's correct. Um, the problem we got is not that we have an outdated Bible. The King James is fine. It's just that we have poor scholarship today. And uh, what about the argument, though, that the original texts were written in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, and you want to translate it into English, and Greek has singular and plural for every word. How are you going to properly transmit from Greek to English without these extra pronouns like thee, thy, thou, and ye? We don't have them in the English language. And people always mock that. They call King James gay. I had one guy that came on here and said he was a black gay man. And this is just bullshit, bullcrap. Excuse me. I almost manifested because I get angry when people attack the King James Bible. The only bone I have to pick with it is they still have capital L-O-R-D in there. And now we've got 10,000 examples of how you pronounce and spell God's name. It's not Yahweh. It's Yahovah. We've got it. Yeah, you see where the Yahweh came from. It actually came from Nazi German scholarship. The King James Bible had it right all along. They just use a J instead of Y. Yahovah, well, God and, preserved and his And not name. even in the original 1611 did they use the J. You won't find a J in the 1611. The bone I have to pick that, with them is they didn't stay consistent. They continue with L-O-R-D when every time you see that, that should be Yahovah. That's the only thing yeah. I have mm-hmm. to say about it. They were following <laughs> what's called the ineffable name doctrine, where... They say if you use the name of your Heavenly Father, you're taking it in vain just by using it, which is not right. That isn't what what the scriptures teach. In fact, we're supposed to address him by his name. Most yes. don't even times. know the name. I've mentioned that to two that are of the tribe of the Kohanim. They had no idea. I said, you got to look at the research <laughs> of Dr. Nehemiah Gordon now. He doesn't believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. We pray for him. But God did use them mightily to find the name. And uh, mm-hmm. they, there's, your, there's another Masoretic Hebrew text, I think, that would just went at auction that they sold for $38 million or something like that. Um, I'm thankful that somebody put some accents in there. I would have mm-hmm. no idea how to pronounce it otherwise. How about you? Do you speak Hebrew? Well, I've started learning. But how are we going to know? doing Bible codes. It, and what you do is you practice. Yeah, but how and would you, you finally, know? Many times you find out that the vowels, you almost sometimes you run into this a lot with the Masoretic. The vowel points, which weren't there when Moses wrote it, weren't there when any of the, the original Bible writers wrote it. See, they're guessing just as much as we are. Yeah, maybe they're a little closer to it, but they also had some motives. Because remember, they're also the ones that wrote us their Talmud. I'm not worried about the Hebrew. Uh, Two of the Jews were given the jobs of keeping the oracles of God. I worry about some of the newer post-1900 Hebrew translations because there there are some that were later corrupted. But are are you to tell me that the oldest... Hebrew manuscripts that we've got, like the Leningrad Codex, the Masoretic Codex, I think they're some of the oldest. Are you telling no. me that those can't got, be trusted? The ones that are the oldest are the ones that they dug out, out of the Dead Sea. 
the Dead Sea Scrolls. They They're by far mm-hmm. the oldest. Yeah, but they don't differ, do they? And that's just it. They, when you pull them out, with the exception of the Nicodotes that were added, they're exactly the same. Well, that's again for the benefit of you and I who don't speak Hebrew naturally. Right. I would have no idea how to read or pronounce. I mean, you know, that's to help people that would come along who are non-Hebrew. Uh, so we can mm-hmm. properly pronounce the word and, you know, and even spell it. Otherwise, we would all be uh, confused from the, from the you know, Western Gentile background that we have. I speak English and some Spanish. No Hebrew at all. I have no idea how to put it all together. And so if there's no difference in the content, uh, well, I mean, it, it, uh, well, it's the same debate as taking our modern Bible right now and saying, well, you know, we've got punctuation put in there. But there's no punctuation in the original. Yet somebody came in and put chapter and numbering systems and periods. And, you know, it's to make it easy. We could remove them out and just have one contiguous line of text. But, I mean, do you, I mean, do you think that's a damnable doctrine that they put punctuation in? Or are you saying that you believe that there's differences in the Masoretic and other versions of the Hebrew out there? Because maybe I misunderstood. That's, that's yeah, what it is. Is basically, like I say, when you see what you see what is in the Dead Sea Scrolls, when you dig up the Torahs they had and compare them to the ones we're, we were using, the Texas Receptus, there was no change to the original Hebrew. There was absolutely none. The Jews are very careful. And in fact, you can incur a lot of wrath if you make a mistake. Of course. And sometimes that that wrath was flogging. And I'm thankful that some of the scribes, uh, for whatever reason, did not blot out the name or we would be in some real trouble. Listen, this is so convoluted, knowing that the enemy is trying to sow a doubt and belief in, in mankind today, just like he did in the garden. Hath God said, we got people right now that don't believe there's any Bible they can trust. You know how bad it is, and you know why I'm a sticker on this? I'm living in a country, the largest Muslim country in the world, and most may not know what I'm about to say. The Christian churches here have a, a book. They call it the book, the Alkitab. It's the Bible. And they're worshiping Allah, the Muslim God who has no son. Go to a Christian church here, Assemblies of God, Hillsong, whatever. They're all praying to the Muslim God who has no son. How the hell did Allah get in there? It came out of hell. A Muslim was the sitting on the people did it. A Muslim was You've sitting heard on the board. Talk about the Wycliffe translators. He, he took t- took them to task many many times. A Muslim was sitting on the review board of the Indonesian Bible Society and when they got to how do we translate God he said well you're in a Muslim country just use Allah I kid you not all the churches down here are praying to Allah who has no son ask any Muslim does Allah have a son and they say no they're correct Allah doesn't have a son but why do we have Christians praying to a moon god now the good news is there's a guy who I'm in contact with, and he's already got the Old Testament translated from the King James into Bahasa, and he put God's name back in there. He's almost done, about halfway Excellent. done with the New Testament. Will it catch on? I don't know. But I've had coffee with pastors, and I've asked them, why are you praying to the Muslim God Allah? Well, 
that's what our Bible says. And, you know, we've got people looking into it, and there was a Muslim who recommended that, so we just go with it. You go with it? Why don't you pray to Satan? So, you know, Major Tom, <laughs> you've been a gentleman in this, to sit here quietly and hear me rant on, but um, I don't know if I buy that, my brother, that the Septuagint, I know there's those that are in that school, is is the gospel. I mean, that's in Latin, isn't it? No. No. The Septuagint, no, in Greek. what happens? Let's, let's get to the story. The... The Roman who was in charge of Egypt, he wanted to construct a huge library in Alexandria. And he did. But one of the books he wanted, he wanted the Torah. But he didn't want the Hebrew version. Because by that time, Hebrew was almost a dead language to them. So they captured a bunch of Jews and said, we'll let them go. If you guys come and translate the translate the Bible for us, you know, minus the New Testament, and so seventy scholars—they were supposed to have seventy-two, but two of them stayed behind. They went to Egypt and they translated the Old Testament from Hebrew in to Greek in fact sometimes when we're looking for Hebrew to Greek switches to figure out what the word might have been say when Yahuwah spoke it when he was teaching because we have his words in Greek but we don't have them in Hebrew sometimes the Septuagint gives us a clue as to what they might be that's the value of the Septuagint the big trouble with the Septuagint is they did make a few slight adjustments. And they did so because they didn't they didn't see it as right to translate it into the Greek language because they considered Greek a deficient language. Is the Septuagint both Old and New Testament? No, there is no New Testament no. Septuagint. Oh, so you're saying your Septuagint is Old Testament only. So are you going to tell me that the King James Bible translators didn't have access to the Septuagint? They did, but as I said, they that they wasn't all. their primary source. Well, they compared them all. They had the Bishop's Bible. They had all that stuff. Right. Well, the Bishop's Bible is a translation, and honestly, they they about sixty percent of the time they use the translation of Tyndale and just modernize the spellings. Because the biggest trouble with the King James translators is we didn't have a dictionary in those days, so there was no standardization of spelling. But your Septuagint is Old Testament, correct? And it's it's in yes. Greek, right? It's in so Greek. Why are you going to trust a Greek text versus a Hebrew scroll? That's exactly it. And as I say, the value of the Septuagint is it gives us a clue, and I'm emphasizing the word clue, as to what 
when Yahuwah taught us the parables, we have them in Greek. The Septuagint may give us a clue as to what he said in Hebrew when he actually taught these things in the first place. What is the underlying Hebrew text so for the Septuagint? It would probably be the Masoretic. So why no. have... It was a version before the Masoretic, but the Hebrew didn't have any vowel signs. Nicodotes, yeah. Nicodotes. Well, right. Again, they call need, them Nicodotes, but we would call them vowel signs. You didn't. They didn't the have those in that day. A Hebrew speaker. So, but let me ask you this, Major Tom. So, the Septuagint is in Greek, and you're saying it it came from the Hebrew scrolls, the Masoretic. Uh, but if you compare the Masoretic with the Dead Sea, is there a problem with any of the Hebrew? Do they not all match? Not for the yeah, most part. The only difference the letters the letters match. The vowel signs do not. Yeah, the vowel signs were added later, about four to six hundred years later. Are you telling me though that a Hebrew native speaker does not know how to spell or pronounce the Hebrew? Oh, there well, was a great the up at the time at the time that it was introduced. There was a tremendous uproar in the Hebrew community, and uh, worse worse than a schism between denominations in the Christian world. Yeah, there's a when they first started doing this. Yes, there were a lot of rabbis who thought it was heretical to add vowel points. And they said that you're violating the Torah when you add them. No, I mean, uh, how how would we know? Again, if we're not well, the thing Hebrew is, speakers, if you actually go through and work through it, many times they pronounce themselves. If you know the consonants, you can, and you know the sounds of the consonants, and there are vowels in the Hebrew. The word letter Vav is where we get our word vowel. Aleph is a vowel sound. Well, let me cut to the chase here. Major Tom, uh, what English text of the Bible are you currently uh, using? And how about you, Professor Tom? I'm using the King James Version and the Sefer as a comparison. And the Sefer. I've never heard of the Sefer. Mm. What about you, Brother uh, Tom? Mac? I'm the one that got, got him started using the Sefer as a secondary text. I use the King James too because it's still the standard Bible that's used worldwide. And well, so to quote anything else is going to confuse people. I don't know if that's true anymore. Uh, it should be, but there's been so, well, what so I'm much saying attack. everybody. Everybody will go back to the King James and will accept it. But if I go use the Revised Standard Version, I okay. alienate half my audience. I hear if you. If I use... NLT? If I use the Scriptures 1998 or 2009, I alienate everybody who's not Hebrew roots. If I use, say, the Geneva, or again, we're going to alienate a lot of people We're you know, some people use the Amer New American Standard Bible I know a very famous Hebrew roots guy who 
uses nothing but that. We're in a mess. But it has problems. We're in a mess. I mean, you know, look at the work yeah. of Gil Ripplinger, New Age Bible versions, and others that have showed you how uh, verses have been axed out of the Bible. And the sad part is that of all your major Bible translations in English, the King James is the last man standing that has not been corrupted with the Horton Westcott Greek New Testament? How do you feel about that? Mm. Um, Well, that's one of the reasons. And, you know, what I like, there is a movement among some Baptist organizations, some of the more fundamental ones. They have actually gotten frustrated with Cambridge Publishing because the Cambridge Bibles that Al Cuppet used to recommend are getting to be in disrepair now. Really? And the quality of them are not as good as they used to be. Well, some of these Baptist publishers have gone back and they've and they've published the Cambridge Bible, which there's no copyright on it, so you can't they're free to do it. Only they make a very, very good cover. It's a very high-quality Bible, some of them. I've had people send me a couple of them, and they're very, very nice. And I have not found a mistake in them. They used to send them to Al, too. I think they were looking for his endorsement, honestly. But Let me ask you this question. Major Tom, and I'm not saying you do this, but this is the average person out there. Let's say uh, you read willy-nilly out of multiple versions, you know, NIV, KJV, NASB, you know, pick any version. Uh, they're, not, they're not the same. Um, and some of them are very different. Some don't even have the, the same verses in their Bible. But I'm talking in general now for a person who does this. If they mm-hmm. were to do it, how's your brain going to process it? Because you read John 3.16 one way in the King James. Next time you're reading it in NIV, NASB. Surely the brain can tell that these aren't the same. And one of them well, that, has got that's to be, why That's why you stick with the King James. Right. And so the problem we got, people jumping around. And uh, it causes doubt and unbelief. And, you know, and confusion. Confusion. That's the word I'm looking for. Because the logic, logic to me is... One of them's got to be right. And your brain doesn't know which one's right. Uh, the only way you know it's right is you have the you have the Holy Ruach to tell you, the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. And the Holy Spirit will confirm what's right and what's wrong. Admittedly, there are some passages that I read in the King James that uh, are over my head. I don't have full understanding of. But I'm not going to let that stop me from continuing uh, as a Bible student, you know, right, you know, studying to show myself approved. Um, but uh, that one basic difference between the King James and every other modern translation, the fact that it is off the Texas Receptus with 90, 95% of the, uh, the underlying text agreeing versus that abominable Horton Westcott. Mm-hmm. Even their sons said in their biographies of their fathers, you know, these guys were not devout Christians. They questioned the deity of Christ. They had all types of doctrinal errors that put them in hell. And the devil came in and supplanted the word of God, 
and with the Jesuits and the Catholics, they stole back the Bible, which they had in Latin, chained up to the lectern. The common people couldn't have it. You had to rely on your priest to translate it from Latin to English. Look at the mess they're in over there right now. Even hardcore Catholics are angry at uh, the new wave that they're bringing in. One world church, homosexuality is okay. And then to think the third... And, and, and unifying with the Muslim religion. Right. And to think that they got it back. They got control of their Bibles back. Even the third edition of the King James, stolen back. They flipped from Texas Receptus back to the Vaticanus and the Sinaiticus. That's why I say King James, last man standing. Well, well you have to understand, Sinaiticus, when it first came out, Tischendorf brought it brought it to brought it to Europe said oh this is the oldest one we had then suddenly somebody who had lived down in that monastery said no this is not one of the older ones this is one of the ones I forged and he admitted to forging it he was probably paid off by the Jesuits to get no, in there he, and infiltrate. He was just, he was an 18 year old kid. He didn't even know who the Jesuits were. He was doing this to practice. That's why it was in the trash can. Because the not, monks all knew it was garbage. They just hadn't taken, out, taken it out and burned it. But they appreciated the kid trying. That maybe, maybe when he gets to be 30, we might actually have him do some real work. And he was horrified when Tishinstar fished it out of a trash can and brought it to Europe. And you can read, his story was published in a British publication a hundred years ago. Well, you know, the claim and has always been that the, um, the Horton Westcott are based on earlier text of the Bible. Yeah, and that was a fraudulent claim. Of course it is. When you look at uh, the early... Uh, church fathers and there are texts where they actually quote from scripture that even precedes the oldest uh, text that we have today in existence and they match with the King James Bible not the Horton Westcott so this has been a false argument that is being made that the oldest must be the best is my point and clearly oh, sure, is sure. God able to preserve his word or not I believe yes. Or, yeah. or what are we doing? And what happens is when you see one of these other so-called manuscripts, you know, you have to look at the providence, and nobody does that. When you buy an expensive painting, you want to make sure that Van Gogh actually painted it. Or you're not going to shell out a few million dollars. You have to have proof. That they call that a providence. And they have providences on manuscripts. What is the chain of custody? How do we know it was? How do we know it wasn't some guy who found some old paper and started writing and did it 50 years ago and just happened to use the inks they used back then? Have you seen that Bible it's, chart that Al Cuppet produced before his death? Yes, I have it somewhere. That has the English Bible purified seven times, God purified his word yeah. seven times, resulting in the King James. 
And of course, yeah. some would say you're a King James only man. That's the only Bible I use. But I would probably be kicked out of a modern Baptist church because I have that one bone to pick. And my bucket list, unless the Lord comes back first or I die first, is I'm going to take a King James authorized Bible and I'm going to go back in there and where it has L-O-R-D, I'm going to restore the name of God. We've got enough confusion. Somebody's already done that. No, they didn't do it right. I know I don't necessarily agree with it. They did it with the... But I like the... They tried. They used Y-H-W-H. Right. And then which you got to one me that, is something's better than nothing. They got one that did Yahweh, and then there's one that did it with a J. But there is no J in Hebrew. If you're going to do it right, it's got to be Y-E-H-O-V-A-H. Now, you know who, who, who came up with that? Is Nehemiah Gordon. And I met him in, Jeru in, in Jerusalem in a coffee shop in 2007, and he pulled out his laptop and showed me the Hebrew scrolls that they had already found. He started with two. I think they've got 10,000 now, <clears throat> where the scribes did not blot out the name. And they've got the accents here, so you know how to spell and pronounce it. But he has already found, I think, 45 Hebrew uh, uh, rabbis who all confirmed the name. Yeah. And the name was almost lost. There is, among uh, many rabbis, they won't dispute the fact that it's Y-E-H-O-V-A-H. It's not Yahweh. There's no. The problem is there's no Yahweh in any of the Hebrew scrolls. No. As I said, that's a creation of Nazi German scholars. On the other hand, they forbid you to use the name. And the, the way the name has been passed down over time is in the ear of one rabbi to another, a special celebration with both of their feet in the water. You and I weren't supposed to know the name according to these rabbis, but God never said that. <clears throat> Did no. not God say in Proverbs 34? His word 34? said the other way. He says, who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name and what is his son's name, if you can tell? 20 years ago, I didn't know his name. And I ran into Michael Rood's group, and they were all trying to convince people that if you said Jesus, you were calling on Zeus, total BS. And you couldn't be saved unless you said Yeshua. And they didn't know how well, to spell God's quite name. That's right. They were so um, re religious that they wouldn't even spell G-O-D. They were putting G underscore D. Yeah, that's what Shabbat does. And then they were using Yahweh. Only for the proof to come out, there's never been a Yahweh in the Hebrew Scripture. No. The King James had it right. But it only uses it right in a couple places. And so, as I say, in 1769, they substituted the Yod, which is the proper letter, with a J which is a Masonic letter. And the confusion continues to today, 2023. <clears throat> you still have people that say, well, we all worship the same God. Allah and Yahovah are the same. No, they're not. <clears throat> no, no. No, they'll tell you that. I told you, Indonesian Even countries... Even in Hebrew, Allah means moon God. The Muslims know that Allah has no son. If the God you're worshiping does not have a son named Jesus Christ, Yeshua HaMashiach, how can it be the God of the Bible? Yeah. And you know how bad it is? There was a Christian a few years ago in, in Malaysia next door to me, which was sued by the Muslim clerics to stop importing the Alkitab 
in the Malay language using Allah as the name of God in the Bible. Mm. And he was banned temporarily, but then had it overturned on an appeal. And a Christian got the right to begin to import Christian Bibles with the name of Allah as the God of the Bible. <clears throat> Muslims are furious. How twisted is that? A Christian fighting to pray to the Muslim God where every Muslim knows that Allah has no son? I have to agree with the Muslims on that. Muslims said, stop yeah, it. I do too. This is not your God. That's one time I agree with the Muslims. I mean, this is this is heresy. And yeah. they're doing it every Let's day. Let's get it real simple. Let's take Hebrew, take the Hebrew word Allah. A-L is, means Elohim, or God, if you were. And La means moon. Mm-hmm. So it's God of the moon. One of the and it translates over to Arabic directly. Absolutely, it's a proper name. But mm-hmm. Arabs will say, "Well, Allah means God." Well, we need to be just. No, it as... doesn't. It means God of the moon. Right. But we don't even know who the God is. Most of us in the West, so uh, we we don't quit back. No, Yahovah is God. Capital G. He's not one of the little gods out there, like Allah, who has no son. So much confusion. You know who's the author of that? Satan. Isn't he the author of confusion? Mm-hmm. And I asked God exactly. 20 years ago. I said, God, is it too much for me to ask what your name is? And I praise God that he used he, uh, a Hebrew Bible scholar, Nehemiah Gordon, as I mentioned, in a group, to go and begin to uncover these out of the actual Masoretic Hebrew, Aleppo, and mm-hmm. Leningrad Codex. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and thousands. Mm-hmm. I mean, they've got them in other places. That's just two of the more prominent places. They've got t- 10,000 scrolls now where the name wasn't blotted out. We should have no excuse now as to how to pronounce or spell God's name. I mean, good grief. But uh, maybe 1% of the church know this. If that. How sad is this, maybe, I'd say, Tom? I'd we, say well, the thing you understand. Dear the God, thing understand is you have to understand what happened when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. One, at the time, the area was controlled by the Jordanian government. They call in the Catholic Church, which is the last people you want in there messing with the situation. Well, the 67 War shows up, what, about 20 years later, and the Israelis take over. They kick the Catholics out, and they take possession of their own manuscripts. But even they, the Antiquities Authority buries it for a long time, until suddenly there was a lot of pressure. We need to get these things out and let people read what they're doing. And... It's taken a long time to finally get the Israeli Antiquities Authority to let it go. And then, suddenly, what does Israel do? They let the Palestinians have the West Bank, which is where where the site of all these things are. Ridiculous. And 
But thankfully, by that time, the Palestinians have left it alone. And so now people have gone in there and studied it. But now suddenly the books are coming out. And we're finding out, one, we have complete copies of the Torah in there. There were a few. But the most populous book they had was the Book of Jubilees. That's an interesting question. Why did they have that one? They had copies of the Book of Enoch, lots of them. But they also had, there's almost a complete book of Isaiah in there, which turned out to be about 500, the date on that, about 500 B.C., which is pretty old, much older than what we had. Have you seen the Hebrew Matthew that was found? Much of it sitting over there in uh, Hebrew University there in Jerusalem? Well, that Matthew thing is a very interesting thing. The first Hebrew Matthew was found buried in the Vatican Library probably 50 years ago. And the Catholic Church was never going to release it. And they still haven't released it. A lot of pressure has been brought to bear on them. But the popes have not been interested. Well, they have found a couple other copies of what they think is the Hebrew Matthew. And from what I understand, there was a time when almost the entire New Testament was in Hebrew. Now you see some of Paul's writings were written in Greek because of where he was sending the letters to. But many times what he what I've been had explained to me is that he first wrote in Hebrew and then translated because he was a multilingual man. And we learned just how multilingual when we when we get the twenty ninth chapter of Acts put in the mm-hmm. put in. Which, I heard that. It was sitting there. The Catholic Church didn't want to release it because it would show all their teachings to be lies. So, well, let's just leave it at 28. And if you look at 28, that just not sound like an ending. According to Michael Rood and uh, Nehemia Gordon, who pieced back the um, Hebrew Matthew, and I think they used Shem Tov's Hebrew Matthew and some other text, that Nehemia actually found over there in Hebrew University, had been there all along. There's no difference at all between that and the King James English, I think with the exception of one word, and they bring out a teaching on it, just one word out of the whole text. That's not bad. Um, and they have found fragments of the others. You're right, uh, but I don't think they pieced anything fully together beyond it's, Matthew. They, haven't ha- they don't have enough to do it yet. Yeah. But, they're, but we know, as I said, Paul was a native Hebrew speaker. He was a Pharisee. He was taught Hebrew since he was a child. He learned Greek. You have to understand, if Paul were alive today, he'd probably have three or four PhDs. And and he was fluent in many languages. He could speak Greek as easily as he could speak Hebrew. That's why he was so important. 
is because, and not only that, they could do Latin, because we know from the 29th chapter, he did get to Spain, mm -hmm. or the Iberian Peninsula, as they called it back then. And after that, he went through Gaul and got up to Great Britain. And the location of St. Paul's Church in London, that's where Paul preached. And he was heavily accepted. In fact, he was more accepted in Great Britain than he was anywhere else. So you believe and then from there then from there he went to Switzerland. So of all the English translations uh, we have access to, uh, in gentlemen, in what in both of your opinions, what is the best? King James. I still say King James, seventeen sixty nine. I'll bet my eternity on it that it is. And uh, the other thing I love about it is again outside of England it's not copyrighted so you can't say that about these others these others have so many changes some vary by hundreds of thousands of changes and um, how do you feel about having to get somebody's permission to reprint a Bible um, would God allow his word to get locked up that you couldn't even reprint a copy well, if you wanted to but that's what happened with the new age Andrew Baird's books you go look at Major Baird's books. Go to the front of each one of these books and you will find that we have to say in each one, every time we quote a different version of the King James, we have to give attribution wow. to the people who did the work. Sure. They've got it locked up. And so as a rule, so as a rule, Whenever I write something, I say that uh, everything is in the King James Version, 1769, unless otherwise indicated. And you know... And then then I have to do an attribution for any other version I use. With the King James, uh, so far at least, um, you can be sure you go out and buy a new copy today to replace your old one. It's still the same thing, but with all these other versions... These are subject to change, being made politically correct, being neutered. Well, and, uh, I will warn you. You go by, say, a Zondervan King James, there are some changes in it. Really? You go by a World King James, there's changes in it. You go get a Nelson Bible, they have their own version. That's why I tell people, go get a Cambridge King James. Sure. Even the Oxford has changes in it. I would agree with you. I like that uh, standard Cambridge. Um, gentlemen, but, look at But the, as I said, now some Baptist, Baptist churches have published that King James. And they actually make of a better Bible than Cambridge makes. You gentlemen are older, like me, uh, old enough that we remember the early church in America, whether it being a Baptist church, a Methodist you know, Church of God, Assemblies of God. A lot of them were not that different. Uh, of course, Lutheran and Episcopalian. But I took a survey recently, uh, just surveyed these churches out there, namely Methodist, Lutheran, Episcopalian. Now you can add Anglican to the list. They're putting homosexuals in the pulpit. 
ordaining lesbian women? LGBTQ? What the hell's going on other than hell has infiltrated these churches? And my question well, it's interesting is, that you had mentioned that yes. uh, Enoch, in the book of Enoch in chapter 93, I think around verse 12 or so. Let me look it um, up here. Yeah, he was talking about that. Now, he, remember, he was before the flood, and God had revealed things that were going to happen 7,000 years later. We're in that period right now, and it says, there shall arise those who will do great, many, not great, but many deeds, and, second sentence says, and all of their deeds will be perverse. Now, if that doesn't describe our day-to-day, I don't know what does. So, gentlemen, I sidetracked you all for a good 45 minutes. And I'm on your <laughs> Okay, well, I'll read it to you. I'm on your this time. Is from, but I want to say to you. Penoch 93, verse 12. Yes. Afterwards, in the seventh week, a perverse generation shall arise. Abundance shall be its deeds, and all its deeds perverse. During its completion, the righteous shall be selected from the everlasting plant of righteousness, and to them shall be given the sevenfold doctrine of his whole creation. Yep. So what I want to say to you, gentlemen, is uh, I've got all the time you need in my back pocket. Uh, Depending (laughs) on your time, I want to flip the mic back to you. Am I understanding that you want to get on the book of Enoch um, and I think it would be interesting for you to cover that. I do want to ask you one question. I heard there's three versions of Enoch. And then if you're going to read Enoch, get version one. Two and three are corrupted. Uh, what do you know about the second and third version out there? Do you read out of Enoch one, two, or three? Well, from the, what one, I, that, I, the one, yeah, that, from... one that Stephen Pigeon uses of Sefer Publishing. He's researched you... all that rather heavily. Yeah. I mean, he's got a law degree and two PhDs. I, I get a feeling, and he's very, very devout, a very devout man. So I'm, I what do you think? sure he's done his homework I, on I, these. I've heard, I've heard him describe the uh, very issue that you've posed here, and from what I can remember, now I'm, my memory is faulty. Okay, I remember that. I'm a fault, you know. I'm, I'm not perfect. But from what I can remember, he mentioned that he was using version 1 because it was the most accurate. Yeah, I heard that that's probably the best. And, uh, hey, there's no doubt that this manuscript found over there in Ethiopia um, mm-hmm. preserved. The Bible does make reference to the book of Enoch. Now, I don't know if, um, if we've got the full intact thing or not, but do you think that there's enough truth in the version one of Enoch that we can uh, glean a lot from it. And with that, um, folks, welcome aboard. We're live with Major Tom, Professor Tom. Gentlemen, where do you want to go today? Over to you. Okay, well, as I said, I gave a little bit of preface about maybe there's more than 66. And we realize that the persons who promoted the 66, one was the people who wrote the Westminster Confession in the 17th century. But there's another person who limited it, another pair who 
limited to 66. And we've heard, we've talked about them before. Their names are Doctors Westcott and Hort. They just they threw out these other fifteen books. Sorry, we don't think they're inspired. Now, where do you come up with that? What criteria did you use that allowed you to put Philemon in the Bible and say throw <laughs> out First and Second Esdras? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Who, who gave you that authority? And the trouble is, their authority comes from their academic degrees. And when you read how they write, it writes like a science paper, not like the Spirit of God is in it. So, Suddenly, I get less and less interested in hearing what they have to say. And I've decided, and I'm working on it right now, I'm going to read these things for myself. And, yes, I only have a master's degree, but so what? The Holy Spirit tells me what's right and what's wrong. And when I start reading some of these apocryphal books, and I see them being quoted in the New Testament and quoted authoritatively, I start saying to myself, who am I going to listen to? The apostles? Yahuwah? Or am I going to listen to these guys 15, 16, 18, 19 centuries later who have very dubious backgrounds? Many of the guys on the Westminster Confession were Mason. Are we sure to trust them? I don't think so. Because when they were doing this, it was right in the midst of the English Civil War. And that's really not a good time to be publishing this stuff. We need a time of peace where we're not having to pick up and run because some battle decides to take place where you're at. So, now we've suddenly, thanks to the Dead Sea Scrolls, we have an idea of what is influencing the early church, the apostles and prophets, and what they were referring to, and from what our our Messiah is referring to as well. And when we see them quoting these particular books, maybe we need to consider them as well. Because they, the authority of our, the authority of Christianity is on the apostles and the prophets. I take more on what Paul or Peter or John, Jude, James, what they have to say over and above what some guys say 15 centuries later. So with this, we're going to study Enoch. 
Because Enoch is the oldest book we have. It's the only book that was written during antediluvian times prior to the flood. Even the Torah was not given to us until long after. And I have a pretty good guess that Genesis was written by Joseph, put in his coffin, because when you read and they're leaving, they open the coffin of Joseph and take his body with him. And I'm sure Joseph had a lot of things brought with him because that was rather common in Egyptian in Egyptian culture. Yeah. They have they when somebody died, all the stuff that they had die goes with them. So why would they not do that for Joseph? So all of Joseph's writings went there. Well, Moses got them, and so when he constructed the Torah, he based a lot of it on the notes of Joseph. And you have to realize, Joseph's father was Jacob, his grandfather was Isaac, his great-grandfather was Abraham. So, there's all this gets passed down and he knows it implicitly. And if you look closely, he learned all 72 languages of the people mm-hmm. of that time. Mm-hmm. So if you, you come from some weird country, he knows your language already. Our Heavenly Father gave him that ability. Actually, overnight, in fact, just before yes. he met Pharaoh. You find that out in the book of Jasher. It, mm-hmm. it adds those details. That's what's fascinating about Jasher itself is also because of all the details that it does furnish. Yeah, it fills it in a lot dis- of the gaps. It does. It does. And we know Jasher is authoritative because the book of Joshua refers to it authoritatively, and so does the book of First Samuel. Mm-hmm. So, here we have the scriptures themselves stating that this is an authoritative book. Well, then why are we throwing it out? Because it doesn't follow our narrative. In the Roman yeah. narrative, since the crucifixion of Christ... The Roman narrative has been used by the devil directly to try to destroy every reference that could be found that would point to Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus, the Messiah from Nazareth. Mark your place there. I just want to butt in and ask you, do either of you need a bathroom break? I want to be... Um, I think it would probably not be a bad idea. Why don't you run some music and I'll take care of that little problem. I've got a special song I wanted to play. And mark your place here, Major Tom, Professor Tom. Okay. I want you to come back and I want you to um, pick up right there. There's a song by Paul Hardcastle 
and I'm going to play it for all the veterans out there. I thought this was very interesting because it comes out of the era that you fought in, Vietnam. Hope you enjoy it. Mm. That's mm. A, uh, a song called 19, uh, just talking about the, the men that were going over to war, uh, much younger than in World War II. Uh, Major Tom, I wanted you to do a program one of these days and give us some more stories of being there in Nam. How old were you when you went into Vietnam? I was a lot older. I was an officer, and I think, let's see, when did I go, 68? I would have been 28. Well, I want to say, um, since our last program, of course, we had Memorial Day, I want to thank you for your service, Major Tom. I mean that, and I have great respect for you. And uh, uh, you went over to a place, uh, you know, just uh, most people don't have any reference of what it's like to live day-to-day over there. You could die at any moment. My father was, um, interesting enough, was uh, drafted in uh, 69. He uh, decided to take a break from his freshman year of high school. I mean, not, not high school, but college. Got out. He popped up on the rolls, and they picked him up and drafted him. And um, he was he was 19 when he got drafted to go to NAM, uh, But he didn't end up going to NAM. They ended up sending him to Okinawa. And I've got a picture mm. I'll share with you sometime. Um, I'm born at the time. He's going through, he was taking OCS and um, out at Fort Sill, Oklahoma, and uh, saw me for the first time at Parade Rest. So I'm, I'm a little baby. He's <laughs> he's holding me at Parade Rest. <laughs> and uh, he went into, uh, he went in there with two of his buddies, and two of the guys, including my dad, ended up going to Okinawa. And the other guy went to Vietnam, and he stayed in the service. My dad was only in there about four years Um he didn't make the cut in OCS, and I always was a little bit angry about that. I said, Dad, what do you mean you didn't make the cut? And he said, Son, I didn't do it. And uh, I, my dad's gone now, but I caught up with two of his buddies a few years ago, and they were in OCS, and I said, uh, What happened? He said, Well, um, one of us met, passed. The other two didn't. I, he said it was, so, it was so difficult. There were people dropping out like flies, and they said they were hard on us. So I guess... Um, you had mm-hmm. to be though if, if you're going into that combat uh, usually officers, second lieutenants didn't last long did they? I heard that they had a no. very high mortality rate even getting off the plane over there you'd probably be dead within a few months uh, in many cases because they looked for you right? The Viet Cong? Yeah yeah. you, you had to wear a subdued insignia by the time I got there because they could pick out your flashy normal insignia and that that made you a sniper's target for sure i um it's interesting you would mention that because as an officer i was a captain at the time so i was a little a little bit more rank a little bit a lot more experience but the experience taught me that i was responsible for the 120 to 500 soldiers that were underneath me regardless of whether they were United States citizens or Vietnamese South Vietnamese citizens and my soldiers were South Vietnamese citizens but I was still responsible for their lives and so that weighed really heavily on me and my approach because I was extremely proficient coming from a farm uh, with a rifle, I I didn't have any problem making expert on on the uh, range when it came time to qualification. Now, so 
speed forward to the to the battles. When I arrived in Vietnam, my attitude was quite defensive, and it was very naive at the time. But I figured that if the first bullet didn't kill me, the guy that shot was dead, and it was really probably true. So I carried uh, um, about you know, well our ba- our combat mode load was 120 rounds automatically anytime we went on the field but I carried four times that Wow! Uh, because I wasn't about to run out of ammo if I could help it now I never fired automatic I always fired semi-automatic and I was very rapid semi-automatic but it wasn't automatic because you lose your control when you do that with that light rifle what were you using uh, M16 or an M14 back then well Mine was an M2 carbine from World War II with a barrel shot out. Wow. And I, could, I normally could get a shot group of a dime. And with this particular shot out barrel, I could, it, it was about four inches. But that was good enough because the center of mass at uh, 200 yards, which would be a maximum in the jungle, uh, I could still kill the guy. So there wasn't any problem with that. I just was frustrated with it. Because I wanted to be a lot, you know, a lot sharper than that. Now, first, speed forward to my first battle. I was in country probably three or four weeks. Uh, we went out on this Fu Wong patrol. It's a intelligence agency patrol, and um, for the CIA. Didn't know it was for the CIA at the time because we were all army. Nevertheless, uh, we got out in the in the area uh, actually in, infiltrated the area about oh I'd say 11.30, 12.30 in the evening crept up on the, on the individual village that we wanted to address and uh, stayed far enough out we didn't alert any dogs or chickens or geese or anything like that so everything was quiet and calm my first Waterbed was my laying down in the flooded rice paddy with my helmet on the rice paddy dike and my shoulders in the water. Later on that day, as we progressed in the uh, raid, I noticed that with my particular hunting skills and instincts, I noticed the enemy long before he even knew where I was. You know, if, if the breeze is going from left to right, and the grass starts to go right to left, something's walking through that patch of grass. Guess what? It could be a hog, it could be a, a chicken, or it could be the enemy. You just watch it, and pretty soon you see what it is. Well, from that point on, I went from a defensive posture, attitude, to a totally offense. I, was, I went from being the hunted to being the hunter. And that included, even though I was a captain at the time, take my, myself personally taking point, the very first man, because I could do it better. Because God had given me the skill. And I knew it was God that had given me the skill. So I had no, I had no compunction on that. I did have to um, get myself what we call psyched up at the time, essentially by telling myself 
and I didn't realize I was doing it at the time. I only found the words to describe what I was doing later on when I was talking to an Indian warrior who was also in Vietnam. But he says we call that telling ourselves this is a good day to die. Let's go. Brother, you better stop you right there. It. Because you don't know how much I love uh, talking to actual veterans. I never get an opportunity. But I'll take you for about five more hours on a Vietnam program. <laughs> I want to do that. But uh, I'm going to show mercy on you because uh, I'm salivating to ask you some questions. But I don't want to be guilty of taking you down two rabbit trails today. <laughs> Hang on to that. Okay. I want you all to get back on what you came on for. But we're going to do a show on NAM because we need to revisit that. You know how much I want to do it. And i got to ask you one question before we continue. Uh, Professor Tom, have you thought about um, doing a book with Major Tom and have him tell the full story? I mean, like he's doing now. The, these stories are, I mean, this is real history. I asked my U.S. history teacher senior year of high school in 87 when I graduated, hey, this is supposed to be U.S. history. We're stuck over here in the Civil War. What about Nam? And she said, well, we're too close to look at it objectively. So, I mean, that really sucked. This is what I wanted to learn about for years. But, um, Professor Tom, why don't you do a book with Major Tom? I know you probably talked about some of the books you've done with him already. But have you thought about a full-on Vietnam story? Uh, you're muted. Uh, uh, Major Professor Tom, you're muted. There you go. Well, yeah. He's got to tell the, the full story in printed form. We did quite a few stories in Alive on the Edge. Yeah, I, there's, there is a, at least a third to a half. Hey, of what, the book. what if we did a special show, Professor Tom, and we, let, we wind up Major Tom and let him begin to tell the stories? And we get about three hours on there, and then you use text-to-speech, and you turn that into the book. Or give you give you some meat to work with. That may be the easiest way to get it out of uh, Major Tom is let him talk and then you transcribe it. I'm just thinking. Uh, I will. I'm ready to buy this book uh, on Vietnam. I bought one called Platoon Leader years ago and read it. It was great, but that didn't have the juicy stuff in. I got to say one more thing to you, Major Tom. You know, Labor Day was the other day, uh, Memorial Day, and I went looking through some photographs and I found a couple pictures of my dad and also my grandfather who was retired Air Force stationed in Tripoli and I saw I need this, to go take up a book for you I'll be right back I found this photo Major Tom when I was in junior ROTC back in 85 in high school and we had a fresh instructor there at Plano E Senior High he had only been out of the active duty army a few years his name was Lieutenant Colonel James P. Coughlin and um, he had no hair. So I remember him. He was a tall guy, bald and sharp. And then uh, he handled 11th and 12th grader. And then they had Command Sergeant Major Barnett, who did freshman and sophomore. And they worked together. So when I was in 10th grade. I was with Command Sergeant Major Barnett. Then when I went up to 11th grade, I was in Colonel Coughlin, Lieutenant Colonel Coughlin's class. I just went to look up him the other day, and he died, sadly, during COVID. And I didn't realize this about him, but I knew he was decorated, Vietnam veteran, both these guys were, and it said he was part of uh, MACV SOG at one point. And I thought, mm -hmm. man, 
I would like to have heard some stories. I had no idea that he was involved in special forces. Um, and I'm sure you ran across some Mac VSOG over there at the time too. So, well, actually, no, because they were more up in the Central Highlands and the DMZ. Um, I was way down in the Delta Four Corps, so I was down where uh, all the all this flooding of the of the uh, Mekong River occurred. Some of these stories um, were never told. You meant point. That's why you've got to tell mm-hmm. the story. And uh, we're going to wind you up and let you go on a program. But I, I've, I've already broken my rule. I mean, I'm already taking you down another rabbit trail. So I'm going to stop right there. I'm going to give it back to you. <laughs> but you got a book, okay, Professor? I've got a book here. <laughs> when I first met Major Baird, I had just finished another book. And it was about Hannibal and his elephants. And I was telling this other guy, he's a lawyer from San Diego. And he said, you're never going to understand Major Baird until you read this book. And so I took it to heart, got the book, read it, and sure enough, that's when I could understand what Major Baird was going through. It's called A Bright Shining Lie by Neil Sheehan. And it's about an advisor in Vietnam. And he did more than one tour. I think he did three. And in the last one in 1972, the one where Major Baird got sent to Korea unexpectedly, well, he wasn't so fortunate. He didn't have the hand of his Heavenly Father on his life. And so, guess what? He went to Vietnam, and that's when everything started to come unglued. When suddenly the South Vietnamese Army was in retreat. And he ended up being left for dead. And he got out by the skin of his teeth. The man's name is John Paul Van. Hmm. That's the story that's... I met him. Oh, you did? Wow. Mm-hmm. Major Tom, what if you yes. took a piece of paper at your leisure and you begin to divide your life over there in uh, chapters and then we block out some time and you come on and do like two-hour monologue and you just tell the story... And then we get the audio over to Professor Tom and he puts it into a book for you. The true story never told. From the cornfields of Iowa to the jungles of Nam. Michigan. And I'm from Iowa. I used to have a boss, he would say he would joke with me. And he was a Nam, but he would say, you know, sometimes I wake up in cold sweats. I'm back in Nam, I had V C on my left and V C on my right, and all I had was a butter knife. <laughs> That reminds me exactly what I did. I was 10 days from coming home, and my buddies were all just jumping all over me, and they said, you've got to stop these combat, um, at, you know, battles that you're, every day that you're going into. Um, because I didn't have to. I was a officer, I was the S3, but I, I chose to be the leader. And so I did have to. Well, they said, you've got to stop this because you're going to get yourself killed before you get home. 
you've got to take these cushy jobs that are called escort jobs for inspections and, mm-hmm. and uh, all this barrier material, things like that that you have to look for, technical stuff in the Army anyway. So I says, all right, I'll go ahead and I'll take a, a VIP escort because you had to have a United States officer on board the helicopter along with these Vietnamese VIPs. One would be a full colonel and the other would be maybe three of them would be a, a lieutenant colonel and maybe a captain, all Vietnamese. They would not fly Vietnamese on a U.S. helicopter without a U.S. soldier being back with them who knew who they were. So that's why I was there. Anyway, that was the escort. I was more like escorting the U.S. pilots to make sure that they didn't get killed by the enemy. At any rate, because it was a uh, uh, inspection tour, I, I normally carried 490 to 550 rounds of ammunition uh, stuck all over the place. I had uh, a vest that had pockets in it. I had my ammo pouches full. I had my pockets full. It was, you know, I was a walking stick of, of uh, ammunition. At any rate, I said, I don't need all this today. I only need a 20-round magazine. I'm going to be on a helicopter. Wrong. So, out we go. We make we had three inspections to make. We made two of them. We're on our third, on our way to the third one. My co- cohort, uh, the captain, who was <clears throat> in the escort business with the Vietnamese, he says, "Let me see on your map where the next deck." next one is and so I showed it to him and he says oh no that's not it that's not it it's over here it's over here well he pointed to a point that was a 10 man outpost and I knew darn well it wasn't what we were supposed to go see I I am an expert map reader regardless of what his opinion was at the time but he became emotional about it so so badly that we were going to have a scene right there in the, in the helicopter and I thought no I'll just let him eat his own words what could happen? You know, what what danger would we be in doing this? So, he, I called the front seat. We diverted, went over to this 10-man outpost, landed. And because it was 10-man outpost and because the jungle tree line was between us and them, we landed 300 meters, that's 300 yards or more, out beyond where the outpost was. The helicopter left, and then we walked over to the outpost that was closer to the tree line. At, uh, at the same time, the helicopter left because it was out of fuel, had to go get refueled. Now, here we are, and they end up... Um, oh, shoot. How do I get this thing to stop? There we are. Gotta Professor stop. Tom, these um, are some of the greatest stories of NAM that have never been told. I told you, there's no better storyteller <laughs> than the major who's been there and done it by the way, did you ever run into Colonel David Hackworth? No, no, I didn't. I, I ran into a lot of soldiers that served with him and, and uh, greatly admired him. But at any rate, continuing on, uh, they now realize they're in the wrong spot. What I didn't know was the jungle tree line happened to be the most um, tenacious um, how do I want to say this? Uh, Let's just stay loaded with enemy. 
Well, yeah, it was it was a, an, an enemy base camp buried in the Oops. middle of this jungle tree line along this canal. Uh-oh. Now, so they leave the 10-man outpost. We walk a few yards away from it, out of earshot. They literally got into a hug of a uh, an NFL uh, circle hug. Huddle. Um, Huddle. And uh, began to talk in Vietnamese so fast. And I was fluent in Vietnamese by that time. I couldn't keep up with them, except that I knew that they, we were in trouble. They were not happy. At any rate, they turned to me and he says, Dai Wee, which is my title as captain in Vietnamese, can you walk fast? Well, I had never run into anybody in the Vietnamese army that could ever outwalk me at that point. And I'm only 10 days away from leaving. So here we are. I says, yes. Yes, sir, I can. I can. So they took off, and they were doing pretty good. I almost had to jump a little bit and take a jog, but I could still walk it and walk faster. So anyway, we're walking down this trail, and as any jungle tree line trail, it's full of jungle, and then it just bursts open, wide open for uh, maybe 50, 50 yards on one side, 50 yards on the other, and it's a little village of grass huts. Then it closes right back down in the jungle, and you're going through the jungle, and open up again, and then close back down. And well, the only thing that was there, which was normal, was old men and women and children. No young aged men visible at the time. They were not uh, mustering to go on an operation. The only thing that probably saved my life, other than God, well, it was God that chose it to be that way. Uh, it was their downtime day, and during a downtime day, they hide all of their weapons and have them stashed away in a in a secure place, and they cannot go back and pick them up unless they get permission from their commander, and the commander won't give the commission unless he's requested, and of course, he's not going to be around at that particular location, more than likely. On we go, and I look at these guys, and they're glowering at me. I have never seen... Eyes was filled with so much hatred for me that I could spit on it, and it would sizzle. And so here we are. I'm thinking to myself, man, if looks could kill, these guys would kill me. Little to know that that's exactly what they would do if they could. <laughs> so I'm fat, dumb, and happy, walking along, uh, noticing all this stuff. We we. Get through the. It, we had to go through about a thousand yards or more. I don't know, maybe two thousand yards, two thousand meters of uh, jungle tree line before we got to the other location, which was a major base for our particular troops, our Vietnamese troops, the regimental troops. Got in there. Uh, it wasn't my job to do the inspection, so I was just found a, a corner hooch, thatch house hut. And uh, sat down and relaxed, out of the in the shade, out of the sun. Long time later, here comes a helicopter, and I call them on the radio and I say, "We got a diversion. You got to come over here to pick us up instead." Okay, not a problem. They come in, they land, and they're going at idle rotor, and I'm getting myself ready, and my soldiers are, and they, we run out of the gate through the barbed wire and out to where the helipad is, jump in on board. Helicopter just sits there at idle water, and I'm thinking, what on earth is going on? 
And uh, he's sitting there, sitting there, sitting there, and I'm taking it. And finally, it just gets to me, and I can't take it any longer. I don't know, maybe 10 minutes, maybe 15. And I, so I get on, a, get a headset with a mic on it, and I call uh, the pilot on the headset when the earner comes. And I says, what's up? What's up? He says, well, we're waiting for a U.S. And I says, well, I am U.S. He says, no, 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 we got another U.S. that's going to deros. Yeah. He's going to leave that day to go home, in other words. That's what, that's what DeRose means. So, pretty soon, far corner of the whole compound, way on the opposite side of this whole thing, probably had, I'd say, at least 100 meters that he had to run through to get to the gate and get out over to the helicopter. And he's got his, um, all, all of his, what is T-O-N-E, is, is his, all of the issued gear that you get when you first report for duty. And it's two duffel bags full, and it is heavy. You've got two pair of boots. You've got two of this, two of that, three of this, four of that. And it's just, you know, in, 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 these are big duffel bags, in addition to his backpack. And he's running with all this, or trying to. Gets on, he jumps on board. I look at him, and he looks at me, and I i had been on an operation with him before, a couple of operations, actually, because those were the operations I was controlling. And I said, what are you doing here? He said, well, what are you? He says, well, I'm derosing today. And I said, well, he says, what are you doing? And I said, well, we landed over here at this 10-man outpost, and, and uh, we rock, walked down the tree line back here, and and uh, they did their inspection. He turned. He had been in country all that time, out in the sun. And you know how darkly tanned you get when you're in the sun every day. This guy was Caucasian, but he could pass for uh, Mexican, Indian, or Negro, either one. And because uh, he was dark, he turned as white as a brand new white sheet. All the blood drained out of his face. I'm looking at him, and what on earth? And I said, what's the matter? He says, you did what? And I repeated it. He says, we never go through that tree line without at least a minimum of 1,100 men and usually 2,300 men before we go through that because it's the main base camp. I says, oh, oh, God was with me on that day. That made me so vexed, so angry that I went back and I told those guys that were on my case, I said, you stop that right now. I was in more danger today than I've ever been on any combat mission, and I'm not going back to that kind of thing. I'm going to be where I know what I'm doing. And that was it. I stayed on combat missions until I left the country. Hey, that's a chapter in your book right there. That's what I'm talking about. Um, listen, this is awesome. This is first-hand testimony. Listen, I told you we would be in trouble. Uh, I asked too many questions, <laughs> so I'm going to give it back to you. But listen, I really, I'm very serious. I want you to pray about that, gentlemen, because I think Major Tom needs to do the book tell the story there's a lot of stories that have never been told and that apply for these last days uh if you're just joining us major tom 
And Professor Tom, gentlemen, back over to you. You were talking about Enoch last time. Yes, yes. And Enoch, uh, spiritually, was in great warfare. He was what you would really call a righteous warrior because he had integrity and he had, he walked the path of righteousness before God. God would talk to him. Uh, and when God talks to you, it can be a knowing in your knowing, which is spiritual. You're, you're hearing from your own spirit, from the spirit of God. And then you've got a, a still small whisper. Or you've got an audible voice. Or you've got him giving you a vision or a dream. Now, those things don't happen to everybody, but they've all happened to me. And it happened to Enoch. He obeyed the voice of God. When God asked him to do something, when God called him to do something, he did it. Obediently and joyfully. And there's nothing more joyful and more fulfilling than being right with God and be entering into his righteousness, not yours, his. It is awesome. You, I can't describe it. There are not words in my language that I can describe it. If we could telepathically pass the experience back and forth, then you might know. But Enoch was this way. He did not deviate. He was an honorable man. And in his day, it was not the normal thing to do that, that tenaciously. But he did. He was an exception. He was an exception. He wasn't just an exception. He was an exception of the exceptions. Oh, he was. Because actually, when you read some of the earlier chapters, he ends up, because of his closeness in his walk with God, that he actually entered entered into the other realm. He passed through the veil and went into heaven and was an instructor, a teacher in heaven to the heavenly host. That's how close he was with God. Now that takes something. And for God to, you know, it it was God that did that, obviously. But again, he followed that injunction. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Who else can you trust that much? God, you can. You don't have to lean on your own and you own your own intuition, your own thoughts, understanding. Listen to God and follow it. Follow him. Anyway, so he was doing this. Now, he was <laughs> he was given several he was a good teacher, by the way, a good instructor. And so God gave him a lot of different assignments. Not only did he get assignments in heaven, he got assignments back on earth. And he would go back and forth between heaven and earth, teaching as he went in each case. And in in the, the as has been mentioned before by Tom, Professor Tom, he was approached by the fallen 
watchers. These are the fallen ones. They're not the good ones or the bad ones. And they wanted to get back in good grace with God. They realized how badly they had messed up. Not only had they badly messed up, it was major, major. And it will be major, major when their judgment comes on week 10, by the way. At any rate, uh, they asked him to go to God to intervene on their behalf. God um, gives Enoch an audience. He's there before God, and he says, well, I'm here to intercede for the fallen watchers. And God says, he almost comes unglued, if you can imagine God doing that. He says, what? The watchers are supposed to be intervening for you, and you're intervening for them? How dare they? And I'm kind of paraphrasing it. It's, it's not exactly, he doesn't say, how dare they, but it's essentially that. And he, his answer, as Professor Tom said, every time they went, the answer was no. No, no, a thousand times no. Yeah. Or sometimes with, with, I will say that with no, I'll say no, no, a thousand times no. Not for Cadwaller and all his goats. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Which only so, a farm, only an agricultural person would understand that. No, that's, that's true, that's true. So anyway, um, Enoch then, uh, and this is later on, uh, chapters 90, 91, 92, and 93 of his his book of Enoch, and I can't remember. It's not very many chapters after that. I don't need. I think there's a couple more after that. Let's. I'll look here real quick. Okay. At any it's rate, on my uh, phone of all things. I have the book. <laughs> I have the yes. book in my other room. Oh, in the other room. Okay. Anyway, um, it's in those hundred five chapters. Hundred and five. Okay. So it's not. He's pretty close to the end, and he's been instructed by God to gather his family and to impart to them the future for all of mankind. Their future, in other words, their future of their seed. So, um, he asks his son, Methuselah, by the way, is his son, and he goes to Methuselah, and he says, Methuselah, get your children and your wife's children, your wife's family, and uh, gather them together. And then get your mother's family and get them together. That means all of his aunts, uncles, cousins, nieces, and nephews. And meet because I have been called by the voice of God. And I have been anointed to tell you what is going to happen for all of mankind. He didn't say all of mankind, but I'm going to say all of mankind. He says, to your, to you, meaning your family, your progeny, in the future, for all of, all of the future. And so he proceeds to begin to unfold his uh, information, and he I starts read out... read it with, here. I'll read yeah. it to you here. It's in... Read. In Enoch, or Enoch 91, we'll start with the verse, verse 1. Mm-hmm. And now, my son Methuselah, call to me your brethren and assemble for me all the children of your mother. For a voice calls me, 
and the Holy Spirit is poured out upon me, that I may show you everything which shall happen to you forever. So he's <laughs> going to go big time. This is an apocalypse type event we're talking about. <clears throat> then Methuselah went and called to him all his brethren and assembled his kindred and conversing with all his children in truth said, hear my children, every word of your father and listen in uprightness to the voice of my mouth for I would gain your attention while I address you. My beloved, be attached to integrity and walk in it. Approach not integrity with a double heart, nor be associated with double-minded men, but walk, Amen. my children, in righteousness, which will conduct you in good paths, and let truth be your companion. For I know that oppression will exist and prevail on earth, and that on earth great punishment in the end shall take place shall in the end take place, and that there shall be a consummation of all iniquity, which shall be cut off from its root, and every fabric shall pass away. Iniquity, however, shall again be renewed and consummated on earth. Every act of crime and every act of oppression and impiety shall be a second time embraced. So mm -hmm. he's this is a, this is literally an apocalypse event. And it seems like with every one of these there is an apocalypse event. With Moses go read Deuteronomy 28. That is an apocalyptic event. He's mm -hmm. being shown what's going to happen to Israel. And how they're going to be scattered to the winds because they won't believe. And they won't follow Torah. And we'll see this with Isaiah. And we're watching the apocalypse of Isaiah happen in the United States right now. Mm -hmm. And all these gentlemen have apocalypse events. We see... John Mark had one. And not only did he have one, apparently Peter and Paul and the Apostle John also had the same one. Because when John Mark started having him, Peter and Paul knew it was right because they had experienced the same things. Except John Mark was getting it in more detail. Mm -hmm. So... That's why his, his apocalypse is revelation, and we don't hear of Peter's or Paul's, because Peter's and Paul's are incorporated in. And plus, the thing to remember, John Mark is technically a scribe. He's from the House of Benjamin. And the House of Benjamin are the scribes. They're the ones that take down what people say. We re remember Ezra was a scribe. He wrote down that everything that happened after the Babylonian captivity was over. And in the Ap Apocrypha, we read from Esdras. He was a scribe also. And these men 
write down what the prophets see. And that's mm-hmm. their job. Yep. And sometimes the scribes actually get the apocalypses. And so they know. But here we're seeing Enoch. They had not set up a scribal set yet because Israel didn't exist as a nation. And remember, this is even before Abraham. Way before. This is before, this is before Noah. You got to understand, Enoch was Noah's, I think, great-grandfather. Don't quote me on that. I'll have to check. But mm-hmm. this is, these lessons are being passed down. But guess what? The Harlot Church don't want you to read this because they, they don't want somebody to believe that they can be this righteous. Because if somebody's mm-hmm. this righteous, they have more authority than the fake church thinks they have. Yeah, that's true. Now, um, as he goes through, he describes week number one, which is the one he's in. And he says, he's this, as we said, he says, this, I'm the seventh that has been born uh, of Adam. That means he was actually listing Cain as one of his uh, brethren, that generation actually. Um, but you can find out how, uh, what year it was that Enoch was born. All you got to do is go to... Um, it's in chapter 93, verse 4. Well, yeah, you can go chapter 93, verse 4, or you can go to uh, Genesis chapter 4 or 5, 5, I think, uh, and read the genealogy where it actually tells you that um, Adam lived a hundred and. 20 years, no, I'm sorry, 130 years. It says Adam lived 130 years and then begat Seth. And Enoch comes from the line of Seth. So then you just follow Seth. And the Bible gives you very conveniently the genealogy and the lineage right there. And you just take the years that it took. Uh, how many years was it that... Uh, uh, Seth lived before he had a child. Well, you add that to the 120, and you can actually, because I do computer stuff, um, I just do a spreadsheet and do a formula on a, and, and give accumulation, and it'll tell you the accumulated years when each person was born, uh, which also you can do to find out when the flood was. And the flood, um, some people say 1320, that's one of the acceptable years that the flood happened uh, from the time of Adam. However, if you follow the genealogy and do the accurate counting, it was 1656 years from the time Adam was created to the time of the flood. I'll tell you that right now. that's, That's my calculation. You can argue with me all day long, but you can read the same numbers that I read, and that's what you're going to come up with. (laughs) So, then it says, um, the flood will take place, and in the uh, 
second, well, actually in the second epic, second millennial epic, second thousand years, in other words. And as uh, Enoch labels it, he calls these epics weeks. So week one was a thousand years, week two was a thousand years, and at the year mark 1656 year is when the flood happened. Then you can continue on from week from that week to go to th the third week. And in week three, it says afterwards, and this is the scripture that's re saying this, afterwards in the third week, during its completion, now remember, completion, that means the end of it, a man of the plant of righteousness, I'm sorry, righteous judgment, now that's a title, shall be decreed. I'm sorry, select. Yeah, see, now there's a problem with my eyes. I still can't focus well enough to make a difference between selected and decreed until I look at it again. Anyway, my eyes are healing, and it's a, it's a wonderful thing for that. And after him, the plant of righteousness, now that's a title, shall come forever. Okay, now that tells you exactly who that plant of righteousness is going to be. It doesn't tell you when it's going to be, but it tells you that it's going to happen forever. It's talking about Jesus right there. Okay? So it's the selection of Abraham. That's the righteous judgment. The plant of righteous judgment is talking about Abraham himself. So, one of the interesting things is it includes not only righteousness, but it includes justice or judgment. So, one of the other things that doesn't come out real clear in, this, in the uh, Genesis account is that when Abraham was called, it was also because he was able to rightly judge things correctly as God would have it judged. He had the mind of God, in other words. And that's what we want to seek and desire most of all, is to have the mind of God, to, as it says in um, Psalms, I think, 27, no, 20, gosh, I think it's 27, verse 8, but no, it can't be, it can't be that. 28 verse 7 but it's right in that area where the scripture says the Lord said to me seek ye my face and in my heart and I would add joyfully I will seek your face O Lord Psalm 27 8 Okay, Psalms 27, 8. What a wonderful thing. God is actually calling us to meet him face to face. So don't take this scribal rabbi garbage that says you can't meet with God. God wants us to meet with him. That's one of the problems. In fact, that lie of teaching comes from the devil. It doesn't come from God. God wants us to meet him. He wants to have a relationship. Why do you think he made mankind? He didn't make him to put him up on the shelf. 
anyway, um, so he's talking about the third week, and that is happening in the third week at, towards the end of it. And it's talking about selecting a righteous man to be the one who will give the, uh, the generations the seed of righteousness that will eventually result in the Messiah himself, God himself, being part of that redemption and restoration. It's all about salvation, redemption, and restoration. That's what God is about all the time. And if we walk in righteousness, if we walk in integrity with God, in his love, and we have an added benefit because we're looking at it from the other side of the, of the uh, main event of Christ's resurrection, so that we have automatic access to the presence of God without being under a terrifying judgment. You know, it's not terrifying if you're walking with God. But if you're not walking with God, anything that he's doing that's, that's just and right and true is terrifying. And you're going you're gonna, to, well, I won't say it. I was going to use an army term, but um, defecate in your pants. Oh. Anyway. You had an accident. Yeah, well. So, then he goes in and he continues on. And you notice how few words God uses. Remember this. This is from Enoch. But you've got to remember, as all scripture is, it's a love letter from God to me. A love letter from God to you. And he goes into chapter 91, verse 9. Subsequently, in the fourth week, during its completion, here we are again at the end of this thing, the visions of the holy and the righteous shall be seen. Wow! It's going to happen. People are going to, holy men are going to see visions and the, and the visions of righteousness that they'll be seen the order of generations after generation I'm sorry generation after generation not plural and a habitation shall be made for them now what's that talking about well it's talking about the period of time of David and Solomon and the kings, the Yehud, that's what it was called in Hebrew, Yehud, kings, that it's predicting the prophets. And if you want to know the Hebrew, um, Yeshu Yahu. Um, let me think, Jeremiah. No, that's not Jeremiah. That's Yeshua. I can't remember which one it is now because the next I think one it's is Isaiah. Jer 
Uh, yeah, it must be Isaiah. Yep, that is. Uh, English is Isaiah. Hebrew is Yeshua Yahuwah. Uh, Hebrew for Jeremiah is Yeremiahu. Then it has Hosea, Yoel, not Joel, as you so rightly um, pointed out already. Nahum, Obed, Yahu, Safan, Yahu, Yakar, Yahu, Miaka, Malachi, etc. And anyway, it's a listing those. Those are the prophets then that it's talking about. Now, it gives the lineage, of course. Then, an interesting thing, uh, and Dr. Pigeon mentions this in his explanation of this same fourth week. He says, now go see Matthew, Mataniahu, or Matthew, chapter 1. And go to the lineage. Now, something that I didn't know that Dr. Pigeon did know, because he's a lawyer, he would pay more attention to it than I would, is the common law of Judah at the time of Christ. Now, that's a fascinating topic right there. Because the common law, actually, as is explained in the, in the scriptures it's, itself, that if a young maiden marries... She does not carry her lineage with her. She takes on her husband's lineage because that's where her children are going to come from is from her husband. It's always through the husband. However, if she's made a widow, and we know that Mary was a widow early on. She had, I think, six children, but apparently right after Jesus' um, bar mitzvah, which is his 12th, 12th year that he was there in the temple shortly after that Joseph died apparently because by the law once she's made a widow she goes back in her counting of her lineage to her father and she takes on her father's lineage again so the lineage we have is brought to us for Jesus is actually Mary's because she's from that lineage of her father and it's exactly why she's why suddenly you see son of Heli instead of yes. son of I forget what what Joseph's father was yes but exactly. Matthew delineates Joseph's lineage, whereas Luke does Mary's. And it's interesting to notice in Luke's lineage that she's from the house of David. Yes. Her, David's house goes through Nathan, his Nathan, next son yes, from yes. Adam. And there's a yes. reason for that. Because Solomon's house was corrupted by Jeconiah. You go to Jeremiah 20 and 23, you see where Jeconiah's house has been cursed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And nobody so he, so can it can't come from the, that. So, so when all these guys, including the royal families, claim that they have a right to sit on the Israelite throne, no, they don't, because of the curse of Jeremiah. Yep. So Now, 
One of the you other see things... Prince Charles and all these guys making these claims, and I know Charles fancies himself the next, or fancies himself the Antichrist. He doesn't yeah. understand that he doesn't get to make that choice, but he's sure trying to. <laughs> and the family sure is. is sure doing their best job to try to make that seem to be, and it's a perverse thing that they wish. Yeah. Because we've yeah, seen yeah. this happen with Hitler, we've seen it with Napoleon. You could almost say it was being tried with Prince Metternich. But not was, too many people know Prince Metternich. And some would say even von Bismarck fancied himself mm-hmm. the same way. Yeah. I don't yeah. think so. I think I think von Bismarck is probably one of the best diplomats of history. Mm-hmm. Because he seemed to know when to do things right and when to stay out of wars. Because mm-hmm. the temptation for Germany after the Franco-Prussian War was to take on all of Europe. But he knew it would never work. Yeah, he knew he couldn't. He couldn't do better and any better in Russia than than Napoleon did before him. Yeah. Now, getting back to Enoch, um, the Joseph of Arimathea, and this has been proposed by Dr. Um, Pigeon, and I've got, to, I've got to research it yet, but he claims that Joseph of Arimathea was Mary's father. So it would have been Jesus' grandfather. And that reason the reason i think he's coming up with that is because of the uh extra archaeological information that he's getting from great britain um because joseph of arimathea actually did go over as uh, with the with the family of mary to well the history of joseph of arimathea is very interesting he was a decurion in the roman empire which yep. is almost like a cabinet minister today and he was an expert in mining. Mm-hmm. That's why he'd been to India. He went to India. He's been yeah. to, all through Asia. But he's also been up to Great Britain where they have lots of tin mines. And the Romans mm-hmm. needed that tin to make their weapons. Well, Joseph of Arimathea, that's why he could walk into Pilate's office and ask for... Yahushua's body and get it mm-hmm. because Pilate already knew he was in trouble with the Roman government for letting this thing get as far as it did so having Joseph of Arimathea come in there he's going to give the man anything he wants because he knows yeah. he's screwed up mm-hmm. and in time Pilate's going to get Spanish to Gaul, which we have other terms in the army about people who screw up and where they get to go. <laughs> and, but he got sent to one of those places. And guess what? He screwed up there. He just seemed to have this ability or this hardwire in him that he could make some very bad decisions. They sent him to Switzerland to fight the Germans. Well, the Germans surrounded his Roman legion, and when it looked like they were going to get wiped out, he just committed suicide. 
well, the place that where Mount Pilatus is, that's where CERN is right now. Quite fitting. Yeah. Well, Joseph of Arimathea also went to Gaul. He took his entire family because he he got into a little hot water with King Herod. And King Herod, he equipped about a 20,000-man army. They went up against Arabs. And King Herod lost the entire lot. And he blamed Joseph Arimathea for his loss. Well, he got he got fired from his job and sent to Gaul as well. You know, he just can't screw up. And well, Joseph of Arimathea had taken his family and gone to Gaul as well, southern France. But when he saw that Herod was going to go there, he packed everybody up and went to Britain. He had a business reason to be there and but this time he stayed. And that's why the British have such a good history to begin with. It's because mm-hmm. Joseph of Arimathea was there teaching. Now that's the right. real key in all this is that Joseph of Arimathea had another name in scripture. Thomas the twin. Mm-hmm. They had to use that to protect him because he's on the Sanhedrin. He represents the house of David. If he's found to be with the with this little sect of Nazarenes, they would kick him off and replace him with someone else, and they didn't want that to happen. So, but as it turned out, one, he goes to England. And things were fine until 46 AD, when both both Mary Magdalene, his wife, and, and the Virgin Mary both die at the same time. And it's sort of perplexing. It would be hard on a man. You lose one woman in your life, it's hard. But you lose two in rapid succession well they he has one ace in the hole the apostles are going to get together in another year so he he gets the bodies and he takes them with him on ship back to Jerusalem and and they go back and sure enough the apostles pray for these two women and they do raise from the dead, but then they ascend to heaven. And then our Heavenly Father speaks to Joseph and says, You got one job you now you now need to do. You need to go to India and preach the gospel. Because he'd always had an excuse before, I can't take women to that dangerous country. Well now he doesn't have any women because they've gone to heaven. Now he's got to go do what he's supposed to do. So he goes to India and preaches the gospel, gets speared to death, nearly dies. And he winds up back in England. And then his story after that is quite a question. My friend Olaf Hagee had a very interesting answer to that question. 
I'm not going to bring it up here. But the interesting thing is we have Enoch or Chanel. He's seeing history before it happens. Admittedly, just a little bit cryptic because it does probably doesn't make that much sense to him. But he knows enough to write it down and preserve it. He knows there's going to be a flood, so he has to find a way to preserve it. That's why all of Methuselah's family is there. And the key person there is a very young Noah. Mm-hmm. There is an interesting... There's an interesting story about Noah, too, uh, in the book of Jasher. Um, when Lamech had Noah, Noah came out almost as white as a sheet. Almost no, no color at all, just white. And they were uh, afraid of him. What is this deviant thing? Is this dangerous? And they went to Enoch and asked him. What do we do with this child? Do we put, it, put him to death or what? And Enoch says, no. God has made him this way because he's going to be the comfort for your, for your house and for all of mankind. And of course, right. we find that out later. So Enoch even had his finger on keeping Noah alive at that point in time. Exactly. And that's, and that's what, like I said, that's why he congregated everybody. He knew it only mean anything to one person. Mm-hmm. But he couldn't give away who that one person was. Yep. Because the devil would try to kill him. Exactly. I, in fact, as we're continuing, we were in, in week four there and discussing Christ. Week 5 actually describes Christ, as it says here um, in the last half of verse 9, chapter 93, verse 9b. Then, in the fifth week, during its completion, the house of glory and dominion shall be erected forever. Now, that's talking about a temple. But it's not talking about a physical, the, a physical temple, not not the temple that was erected after um, the Babylonian captivity. Even is <clears throat> talking about because it says erected forever. The only temple erected forever is the temple that is built without hands by Christ Himself on His death burial and resurrection and by that resurrection he establishes the temple built without hands forever even he said tear down this house and i'll rebuild it in three days yep Mm -hmm. and uh, he was making reference to this very verse when he said that yes yes see it that's where you, you have get to your understand these from people. The bill. Mm-hmm. These people are referring back to these books. Yep. 
and we don't see it because we've been lied to so many times by people mm-hmm. who claim to have spirituality, but we find out the they only, really didn't. All they have is man's initials behind their their name, piled higher and deeper, PhD. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, here we have the Messiah being referred to immediately, directly, when it says erected forever, glory, God's glory, it's not talking about man's glory. The house, in fact, it says the house of glory and dominion, both. And we know that that's true because Christ is not only our priest before God, but he is the king of kings before God. And it is going to be forever, which we've been we've discussed already. So that's exciting. Week five. Now remember, week week five. Each one of these is a thousand years. So by this point in time, it's been five thousand years. Mm-hmm. And Rome is going to come along, and we we've, we've discussed the Roman Church. Well, let me propose that the Roman Church is nothing more than the extension of the government of Rome and its oppression of truth to begin with. Rome would not allow any uh, discoveries, any history that they were aware of to exist that did not comply with the Roman narrative that Rome did it only. Not so. Rome didn't do anything except borrow Greek knowledge and understanding of the universe and then ruthlessly incorporated it with you can only accept this and we find if we find any one or any manuscript or anyone with a manuscript both will be destroyed and not by very fun means either by the way crucifixion is not nice Boiling in oil or boiling in water is not nice. When you look at those kind of deaths, the simple public execution of beheading looks very enticing. I would much prefer that as to being thrown into a vat of boiling water or oil. Which, by the way, uh, what am I trying to say? Um, Constantine, that's how he executed his wife, because she deceived him about his firstborn son. And he executed his son only to find out that she had fraudulently manipulated him to get him to, to kill. do it. To do it, yeah. And so he executed her by throwing her into boiling water. Well, he did the same thing with John, the, the disciple, and threw him into the vat of boiling oil. And, and he didn't he just, boil. He didn't boil. He just floated around in it unharmed. So they, they couldn't kill him, so they took him out of the bat, vat of boiling oil and banished him to the Isle of Potmos because they didn't know what else to do. And we don't know what's happened after that. No. History is very... He might be around now. 
<laughs> this is true. Now, he can't be one of the two witnesses because the condition of the witnesses is that they have to have seen the resurrection and death. Yeah. So, he doesn't qualify because he ran away. He wasn't going to yeah. be around and get put on one of those crosses. And our Heavenly Father didn't want him to. He wanted him to be a witness to the world. That's which right. he was. So, I'm not ready to throw rocks at him for that. Nope, nope. Continuing on, week six. This is um, 93, verse 10 and 11. After that, in the sixth week, all that... I'm sorry, all all they that are in its... Okay, thanks. After that, in the sixth week, all those who are in it shall be darkened, and the hearts of all them shall be forgetful of wisdom. And in it shall a man arise and come forth. And during its completion, he shall burn the house of dominion with fire. And all the race of the elect root shall be dispersed. And so we're going to see the Israelites scattered to the nations, just as Moses told us in Deuteronomy 28 and other places. Leviticus 26, too. That he was going to disperse the elect. Yep. And that now, happened after after the fall of the two temples. Because remember, yeah. we had the first temple collapse in 70 AD. Then we had a second collapse, temple collapse at the end of the Bar Kokhva revolt in 135 yeah. AD. And that mm-hmm. dispersed everybody. In fact, yeah, Jews for a did. long time were forbidden to go to Jerusalem, and if they did, they were killed. And what did yep. the Romans do to the Temple Mount? They erected a a temple of Ju- Jupiter on the site. Yep. Yeah. Now, the interesting thing about it is it, it's talking about a darkness. And as we can see in history, um, well, to begin with, uh, in in 68 A.D., Jerusalem was surrounded by the legions of Rome. Now, when a when a army comes in to do siege, they have to set up their camps around the site first. Then they have to erect their siege wall and all this kind of stuff, and bring in their siege engines and stuff that they used in those days. Well, as soon as the troops came and surrounded. What does the scripture say from Matthew 24 and Mark 13 and Luke 21? When you see, when Jesus said, when you see Jerusalem surrounded. And compassed by armies. Compassed by armies, in other words, surrounded. Don't go back into your house. Flee now. You know, it was urgent. You you could get through the lines because the lines hadn't been formed yet. But you only had a few minutes or hours to do that. So they, all of, all of the 
worshipers of Yahuwah as the way. That's what they were called in those days in that location. They weren't called Christians yet. They immediately recognized that event and they fled. Uh, some fled to Qumran. Well, we call it Qumran. It actually was is designated in uh, the writings as Damascus, which is interesting because that's where Paul was and he was let down out of the uh, wall and there. He wasn't 300 miles away. He was right there at that particular site. And that's why he could go into the wilderness because he was already in the wilderness. And the scripture that says Damascus, it'll be a ruinous heap. Guess what? Qumran is in fact a, you know, it's a permanent desolate heap. Now, having said all that, they then, well, I have to, I have to bring one forth one other thing. They were from the righteous seed of the priesthood, the Sadducks, if I'm pronouncing Zadok. it right. Zadok. Zadok. Yeah, Zadok, there we are. And... They were the true priests, high priests for all of the nation of Israel. Those that were priests and high priests in Jerusalem at the time of Jesus were imposters. They were idiomites. Well, they were they were Fiabi priests. Well, they yeah, Fiabi, but they were. They, but they, they could claim yeah. they could sin on, They could be priests because they were sons of Aaron. But well, they were, but they were cursed. Well, but also, they had Roman blood in them, too, well, which disqualified them. That's what Josephus, that's why yes, Josephus that's right. was howling, because he said, my family has a more right to serve in that temple than these Fiabis do. Yep, but the trouble right. was, it was the Fiabis that gave Julius Caesar the money to get out of his mess in Egypt. And yep. so... Their reward was they got to, one, they got Herod to build them a new temple, which was totally corrupt. Mm -hmm. And two, they could get, got to choose who was the high priest. That's right. So suddenly we have, and it's interesting, the first high priest of that temple was named Yehusha ben Fiabi. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That tells you right there. Yeah. And the other problem is that um, John the Baptist was from the royal priesthood. I want to say that the Aaronic priesthood, the proper one, because his father was Zacharias. Zachariah served in that capacity. He and was a high priest, but he was the high priest, a, and and so the um, what's Miriam's? Well, let me think. It was Herod. Herod had married his brother's wife. That was his and, first wife. Yeah, his first wife, and Salome was his her daughter, and she danced to the point of pleasing Herod. I mean, yeah, pleasing Herod, and then. Her demand from her mother, mother's prompting was, I want the head of John the Baptist served to me. 
on a platter. So now he's just beheaded the high priest of all of Israel. And Salome recognizes that. And she comes under conviction and she converts to Christianity. You know the lady that comes to Jesus and she's wiping, she's anointed his feet with oil, the fragrant oil that's expensive, and she's wiping his feet with her tears and her hair. And he said, this woman, this um, act shall be remembered forever for what she has done because she came to him in repentance for what she had done. Anyway, continuing on, what happens when you try to stamp out the truth of God? Well, great darkness proceeds. And that's exactly what this verse was talking about, that it would be in darkness. That And guess what we had? We had the Dark Ages. Why is it called the Dark Ages? Because all uh, civilized knowledge was practically stamped out by Rome because it didn't fit their narrative, and the Roman Church picked up on that same action and followed through. What do you see happening? Let's get a little history worked in here. Constantine realized, I think he was smart enough to realize, his empire was not going to hold together after he died. So he was smart enough to start getting rid of the expenses of the Roman Empire. And the biggest expense they had was these buildings they called basilicas. So what did they do? They gave all these basilicas to the Christian church for church buildings. Let them eat the cost. Well, suddenly the Christians with all these massive church buildings, they've got to find a way to pay for them. That means they got to get more bodies in the pews and they got to be able to and they got to got to increase contribution revenue. Just a real tough business proposition there, boys and girls. So, suddenly, what do they have to do? They have to find a way to incorporate everybody else's religion into their own. And that's why we have the Vatican as it is now. Why the Pope wears a a little mitre a little thing on his head from Gagon. Mm-hmm. That's the place we used, to call the those, we used to call those cunt caps. Oh boy. Sorry about that. But they're but they're called they were from Gagon. And mm-hmm. just about everything on the Pope these days is from some false religion. That's what they do. They are in it. She is a harlot. And yeah, harlot fits her. Totally, that's why totally corrupt. Yep, totally corrupt. That's why when we studied Revelation 17 and 18, we saw that Rome was the harlot. It's very mm-hmm. clear. 
a harlot will sleep with anybody at any time. And all they got to do is be paid. And that's why suddenly it's talking about the forgetful of wisdom. Because mm -hmm. when you start worried about business, we're, gonna, we're seeing this now. They're forgetting wisdom, and by forgetting wisdom, they get corrupted. Mm -hmm. And we're going to watch this go to a fruition very quickly. I cringe yep. about it almost every day now, realizing yeah. that our leadership is devoid of wisdom. Yeah. And you can't tell them wisdom. And it's not only is are they devoid of it, they're being devoid of it at an accelerating pace every every day. Because they, as they you because as you get out of Rome, suddenly you have the Merovingian line, which claims to be from Solomon's line, which I talked about last week. We have the Merovingian lines arise. And mm -hmm. from the Mer Merovingians, we get the Carolingians. Charlemagne was Carolingian. Mm -hmm. By the way, Charlemagne could neither read nor write. That's right. He knew how to follow that's how orders. Dark, yeah, that's how dark the ages were in those times. And every, and they, yeah. every royal family comes from Charlemagne. And, mm -hmm. you know, Prince Charles has some very interesting, somebody said the other day, he also descends from Vlad, Vladi Tepes, who we know as Dracula. Mm. So we know there's a darkness there. And it's in mm -hmm. all of them because they've got the Jeconiah curse running mm -hmm. through their mm -hmm. line. And that's why they fancy themselves as being the Antichrist. But what they don't understand is it takes all seven royal families to gain the power they need. One can't yep. be ruling over the others. They all have to be they all unity. have to rule together. Then they become a mm. beast. And that's what we're going to see in the next few years. Yeah. And I know some people are really, really think King Charles is the Antichrist. But one, he's too old. And two, what would happen where you're at, St. Vincent and the Grenadines? If, there were, if the Nazis were going to come invade St. Vincent's, who would you call on? For defense. Hmm. Who would you be picking up the phone to? Yeah, you call King Charles. Is he going to be able to help you? Uh -uh. You call Southcom, U.S. Army. That's not going to be very good either. Not <laughs> in today's world. So, but that's who's probably who's who's supposed to be the ones that are supposed to be protecting you. Yeah. Yeah, they used to. They actually had um, 
organized military raids here to wipe out the uh, prolific crops of marijuana. <laughs> but that's oh. not, that hasn't happened for the last 20 years now. Anyway, that, that really brings us right up to the dark, from the dark ages, then it brings it, uh, us up to week seven, which is the week we are in. Yes. It says afterwards, in the seventh week, a perverse, boy, is that ever sure, generation shall it's arise. It's no understatement. No, abundant shall be its deeds, and all its deeds perverse. During its completion, which is where we are now, we're the last generation of it, the righteous shall be released. So I'm sorry, selected. Selected. From the everlasting plant of righteousness, and to them shall be given the set. Well, you read this before the sevenfold doctrine. Of his creation. whole creation. In other words, God has ordained that mankind shall only rule on earth for 7,000 years. Seven epics. Yeah. I think the thousand is sort of a misnomer because one of the things, when you go back to the time of Noah, the days were 360. We've had well, that's few- true. We've had a few things happen so yep. that... You've had Joshua's so, interruption. You've had... Uh, you had the uh, plagues. You've had the... Yeah. You had the exodus. That disrupted everything. Because mm-hmm. every time Olaf Hagee's Typhon shows up, Everything gets adjusted in the earth, and that's every 4,250 years. Mm -hmm. We're fixing to have Typhon come back again, and I wish Olaf was here to explain it. Mm It seemed like he was the only one who had a fix on it, because he could study the stars. Mm -hmm. He's the only guy I know of who ever lived on a golf course, not so he could play golf, but so he could look at the stars. Because because at night, there's no lights around, so you can look through a telescope and see everything. Mm-hmm. And I don't think the man ever swung a golf club in his life. <laughs> but to continue... You know, yes. the thing is, it's a time where you're going to see a separation. You're going to see the perverse side. That's one, that's one side. And then you're going to see a righteous side. Mm-hmm. I don't think there'll be very many in this righteous side. But they're... They're eventually going to have to separate, and when they separate, our Heavenly Father will give them things that nobody else can have. Yeah, in fact, that brings us to to week eight, because we're right at the close of the completion of week seven. So, 
he continues on with verse 13, actually, and says afterwards, there shall be another week of the eighth of righteousness to which there shall be given a sword to execute judgment and justice on all oppressors. Boy, that can't come any too soon, as far as I'm concerned. Anyway, <laughs> sinners shall be delivered up unto the hands of the righteous. Into the hands which, of the righteous. Yep. Who shall, who during its completion, shall acquire habitations by their righteousness. And the house of the great king shall be established for celebrations forever. We read about mm -hmm. those in Ezekiel 41 to 50. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What a one beautiful event to watch, to be involved in. This is a vivid description of the coming millennium. Reign, millennial reign of Christ. Amen, then, amen, amen. And after and this, yep, go ahead. And after this, in the ninth week, shall be the judgment of righteousness. The judgment of righteousness to be revealed to the whole world. Mm -hmm. Every work of the wicked shall disappear from the whole earth. The world shall be marked for destruction, and all men shall be on the watch. For the path of integrity. Amen. And after this, on the seventh day of the tenth week, there shall be an everlasting judgment, which shall be executed upon the watchers, mm -hmm. and a space, spacious eternal heaven shall spring forth in the midst of the angels. Wow. And, the form, and the former heaven shall depart and pass away. Dang it, where have I heard that before? Mm -hmm. I think Peter said that, too. Yeah, that's right. And so did uh, verse, what, 20? Revelation? Yeah. The mm, former heaven shall depart and pass away, mm -hmm. and a renewed heaven shall appear, and all the celestial powers shine with splendor, with sevenfold splendor forever. Afterwards, mm -hmm. likewise, there shall be many weeks but shall eternally exist in goodness and in righteousness. Neither shall sin be named there forever and ever. Who is there of all the children of men, capable of hearing the Holy One without emotion? Who is there capable of thinking his thoughts? Who is capable of contemplating all the workmanship of heaven? Who is comprehending the deeds of heaven? He may behold its animation, but not its Holy Spirit. He may be capable of conversing, but not ascending. He may see all the boundaries of these things and meditate upon them, but he may, can make nothing like them. Who of all men is able to understand the breadth and length of the earth? I think Job said that too. Mm-hmm. By whom have seen the dimensions of all these things? It is every man who is capable of comprehending the extent of heaven and what its elevation is and by what it is supported. 
how many are the numbers of the stars, and where all the luminaries remain at rest. This, this is where we're seeing where Revelation is getting this. Right here for Enoch. That's right. So if Revelation is using Enoch for its authority, maybe we need to study this book a little better. Because in doing so, we'll understand Revelation a little better. Amen. So, maybe those guys in England, we need to consider what they decided less and less and less. Because I'm starting to think they didn't have any authority to do so. Well, I'm I've long past that that particular thought. Well, I'm fact, feeding that I, thought. I'm really, con- I'm, yeah, I, I really um, see nothing but um, what are the words I want to look for? Um, filthiness, vile, greed that knows no bounds for power at work in these men of corrupt minds and corrupt attitudes, corrupt intent to lead astray all mankind. And how condemning can that be before Almighty God? Gentlemen, what do you want to title this episode today for the Archive? Oh boy! <laughs> hmm. Well, we've been all over the track. Um, the the apocalypse of Enoch. Uh, the apocalypse of Enoch and the confirmation of current events being displayed fulfilled. by Fulf- being fulfilled. Yeah, yeah that. That would be better, yeah, being fulfilled. Now, here in just a minute, I want you each to give out your contact information, but before you do, I want to ask one bonus question today. Um, It's been a while since we've had you on Major Tom, so I wanted to ask you, do you think um, America is going to have to um, go to war with Russia pretty soon? Um, Save the dollar? Um, Hmm. Because, you know, Russia well, is setting up bricks, right? Federal Reserve yeah, is yeah. Uh, wanting to hang on to the dollar hegemony, but even more than that, uh, final point I'll let you answer, and that is uh, I hear that um, we're sending F-16s over there, and those could be carrying nuclear weapons. Surely Putin can't allow that to happen. So do you think World War Three is coming? Over to you. Well, to answer your last question first, uh, Putin has already spoken in a speech here two or three, two days ago, three days ago, I think, that fielding F-16s is a red line and he will use nukes. I would too. I'll be honest with you. He's uh, exhibited a lot of restraint and we just keep on yep. poking the bear. Prodding. But yeah. Do you think that... Yeah, well... We have maniacs uh, based in power mm-hmm. that do we have? Are these maniacs um, 
prideful enough to think that they can take on Russia or bluff them and win? Or yes. are we on uh, yes. a collision course <laughs> deliberately by people who want to destroy America and use Russia to do it? Yes, on all, yes, on all counts. Uh, essentially, what you have are drunken uh, despots and their little fiefdoms in, in all of the agencies of, of government, the United States government, who, account, who are not accountable to anyone, who can run rampant freely with sin and get away with it, and fraud and perversion and get away with it. And because of this lust within them, of power they themselves don't have a reverse they, they don't have wisdom they, they, they're devoid of it and their perversion is their execution and they unfortunately will cause us just like the nation of Israel had to suffer for the sins of David when he did the incorrect census count we are responsible for our leadership, and we, as the citizens, will be held accountable, and and we will be suffering far more greatly than they. But they will be cut off. Now, the reading the scriptures, combining combining the scriptures of particularly of Revelation, right now, um, we are in fact watching the fulfillment of the all the prophecies in. Revelations and in all the the uh, apocalypse of Isaiah and of Jeremiah and of Enoch and of Moses and and all of the other righteous men before God that He has used to give those messages through. And in fact, I think probably David has some as well. Did you know, by the way, as an aside, that David wrote 3,600 other psalms? Yes. That are prophetic, and they're lost. He right. wrote 364 for every day of the year. Days of the year, he wrote wow. 52 every Sabbath to be uh -huh. read. He wrote the, the 52 and the 364 have been found, but none of the 3,600 have been found. Oh man, that's well. Sad. The interesting thing, Ezra said that there were twenty-two books or twenty-one books for the common man. Or no, twenty-two. Mm -hmm. I think it is twenty-two. Twenty-two. Yeah. Actually, it turned. It was twenty-two. Started out twenty-two, and the Greek Greeks came along, and or I should have the Athenians, which were part of the tribes of Israel, the Athenians came along and said, well, we've got 24 letters in our alphabet. We want you to make it 24. So they made it 24. Then they constructed 70 other books that were only to be read by scholars. Well, for the for righteous. The, really? For the righteous, yeah. For the righteous. Yeah. So I that, find it that interesting. Makes 90, it wasn't for the scholars. It was for the no, righteous. For the righteous, you're right. And so that gives you 92, I think, altogether. Well, surely Solomon uh, would have wanted to keep that intact of his dead. Do you think maybe they have that buried under the Temple Mount somewhere? I've know. heard lots of stories about where those 70 books might be. 
Wow. I've even heard stories that Shabbat has them. Amazing. That, I hope that's they a don't. Story. I hope they don't either. Maybe some clickers got them. Oh, man. Can you imagine? Um, and like I say, we have uh, this man we've mentioned a few times. He's looking for him as we speak. Gentlemen, how much and time? He, again, and just, if he gets them, he'll, he'll release them and let everybody have a look. How much time do you gentlemen think we have before we see fireworks going off over there in Ukraine? Between, I mean, we're talking nuclear fireworks. Um, I've heard prophecies being given that speak, and these are godly men that that have been verified as is accurate in in their proclamations from what they receive from God. That sometime in 2024 will be the first nuclear strike on America. Oh boy, God have mercy. And maybe it is his mercy that's going to bring it because um, when you're talking about sex changes on children and all these vile things that are going on, I mean, we're not bringing fruits meat for repentance. If repentance is what it takes to turn this thing around, uh, we're just digging our our country into a deeper hole with the Lord. He's going to have to judge. I mean, this is insanity what's going on. This is something even Major Baird with his own apocalypse. He saw what happened to America. It's going to break yeah. down and with a banyan tree, break into 50 what? different states. Yep. And was, that was, yeah, well, two things. I had a dream of a plowing angel that plowed and overturned the entire soil of the United States. Now, if that isn't a description and a half, and only the goods, it was a deep plow, 18 inches, not just six. And uh, that's where you get your most moist and fertile soil and actually it was three feet deep wow uh, that's a deep plow really deep plow and if it's a deep plow like that you're going to get subsoil there's everything that's on top is going to be on the bottom it's going to be gone 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 speaking of deep i heard that ukraine is one of the most fertile regions in the world with topsoil going yes. down maybe 30 feet. Um, yes. I've been in soil in Michigan that is that deep, and it is really, deep, really lush. Wow. So yes. Just like Iowa, same thing. What? The yep. black soil of Iowa, it can be a muddy mess. What's the repercussions? Oh, you aren't uh, going to move a tank in Iowa in the spring. And I'm not worried about that. I'm or worried about when the nukes go off over there. Um, is that going to destroy the breadbasket of the world? I mean, if they contaminate well, that area, will. will you ever be able to mm-hmm. use it again? You know what I'm saying? Even the depleted uranium it's, being used right now. Back to you. Yes. Well, the the these things are not of man. Man thinks he's in charge of it. But it, these are judgments of God, and they are sure to happen. They're not. You can't beg off on them. They're going to happen. And it's part of God. Part of God's judgment. Remember, God's judgment is merciful and just. Both. It will be not too much, but it will not be too little either. It will be uh, what exactly it takes. Have you gentlemen uh, noticed that in the past couple days we're hearing uh, that um, 
Chris Christie is announcing his plan to run. Of course, um, Mike Pompeo was on CBN a few months ago talking about a run. He uh, said he isn't going to do it now. Oh, oh really? Back up. Well, I don't think these guys have money to bring it to completion anyway, but um, you notice um, that just about every one of uh, Trump's inner circle, they were thinking about tossing their name in the hat. Now Pence said he's going to run, apparently. <laughs> he's not going to get very far. I can see what's going to happen to him no. when he gets to Iowa. We're in some... Uh, it's going to yeah. be interesting. JFK? Nephew RFK Jr.? <laughs> running on the Democratic ticket. That'll be interesting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I expect him to turn into a third party. You know, if Trump uh, when, it's all, when it's all said and done, probably Trump will get elected, but he will, it will be in a time of chaos and war. I saw that in a dream here about three weeks ago. If he wanted to win, he should team up with uh, JFK, I mean, RFK Jr., uh, or put DeSantis on the ticket, but I think he's too prideful to do that. You know, all that being said, uh, how could I vote for the guy a third time when he still has never repented for Operation Warp Speed? That's so sad. I wouldn't. I that won't. Yeah. He won't get my vote I again. won't. No. No. He screwed it up and uh, got blood on the hand of many people. I mean, uh, even Ray, Christopher Ray, this jerk, um, who hired him? Right, Trump. So well, that mm-hmm. was Chris Christie's idea, from what yeah. I understand. I think you're right. And Mike Pompeo. That wasn't he's, Trump said so. Yep, of course. Pompeo put in that uh, female CIA agent who, um, you know, was a turd also. So you know, Trump made the bad decision of trusting other people. His personnel decisions, yeah, leave much to be desired. They were a disaster. Every one of them, he from sessions wa- on down. He 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 only was there to please people in those appointments. He wasn't there to do something good. It's sad. Um, and I heard that DeSantis may be in bed with uh, Jeb Bush. What do you think about that? Is that possible? Well, we we saw in DeSantis's original video. Guess who was endorsing him? George W. Bush. And Jeb Bush. And so I see that I'm saying I don't trust that guy in the least. Is it McCarthy who has backpedaled on his plan to um, defund the eighty seven thousand IRS agents? He's already backpedaled on everything. He's practically given Biden everything he wants. I'm coming to the conclusion, gentlemen, that um America's screwed. It's, as I said, it's going to end up being that an axe is going to have to be taken to the root. Major Baird's right on that. Mm-hmm. I wish he wasn't. I wish I could say he's wrong, but I'm sorry. I see it the same way. God have mercy. Um, you think to me, but I think in the end it'll be better. Well, I think we just have to trust our heavenly Father to realize that what's going to come out at the end is going to be much better. Do you think, though, that we're we're getting ready to see Dimitri Dudeman's uh, vision fulfilled, or is that still some time down the road? No, I think it's coming right now. 
Because that is in the divisions. Henry Groovers. No, I've spent a lot of time with Henry Groover. Gentlemen, and, um, with the invasion at the do you do you call what's happening at the southern border an invasion? I believe it is. Most certainly is. Do you think any of it's these making people, me think of making me think about going further north? Do you think that any of these people are part of a, a fifth column that are coming oh, in? Oh yeah. yes, absolutely. I don't Even, think there's any doubt about it. Uh, I'm going to have to go take care of a baby here. Th thank you very much, Major Tom. Uh, before you go, give out your contact information. Oh, okay. Uh, you can reach me at uh, email tom at aliveontheedge.com. You can also go to my website titled aliveontheedge.com. And uh, go ahead, Tom. Okay. In my case, it's tom.mac at whitestonefoundation.org. And my website's whitestonefoundation.org, biblecodes.co, antichristwatch.org, ancient-evil.org. Next time I put up a PowerPoint, probably next week, I'll put in a listing of all those. Major Tom, okay. it sure is great to have you and Professor Tom back. You want to close us in prayer? Okay, dear Heavenly Father, we call upon you in this terrible time of trouble that is before us with this perverse generation that's not just for our own nation, but it's for all the nations of the world that are in this global cabal of the Western world. And I, I praise you for raising up righteous individuals, even though they've been our age-old enemies, yet you have caused them to, to stand in righteousness before you. I pray, Lord, that you will turn the hearts of those that are with you to wisdom and to righteousness and to stand against the corruption that has come from the sin and the sins of the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless Amen. you both, gentlemen. Thank you for coming on. Appreciate you. My pleasure. We went the distance tonight.